Hey everyone, Meet Kevin here. Today we have a very special guest on the show. We have Peter Schiff, the CEO of Euro Pacific Capital, Schiff Radio, amazing YouTube show as well. I'm so excited to bring you Peter Schiff and I would love, Peter Schiff, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience as well. Welcome aboard to the Meet Kevin Show. Well, nice to meet you, Kevin, and your audience as well. And, uh, you know, Euro-Pacific Capital, uh, what we do there, it's actually a division of a larger broker-dealer because I ended up selling that particular company um, around the time that I moved to Puerto Rico, where I had already moved my asset management company from California years earlier. That's Euro-Pacific Asset Management. That's the, the company that you can see, uh, I think, on my right. That's... Uh, and Europe Pacific Asset Management is a registered investment advisor. We manage separately managed accounts as well as uh, our five mutual funds that are in the family. But my main goal is to help Americans protect themselves. And not just Americans. I have a multinational clientele, but it's predominantly Americans. That's, you know, we have more Americans than anybody else. Uh, and I think Americans are facing a greater threat than just about everybody else. It's the U.S. dollar that I think is going to be the epicenter of the next crisis. You know, I rose to uh, a bit of uh, uh, notoriety for predicting the 2008 financial crisis. Well, it's the same dynamics that created that crisis that are leading to this next crisis. And it's just much worse. And the consequences are going to be much greater for the people who aren't prepared for it. So I'm trying to get people out of dollars, out of dollar assets, uh, build good portfolios outside the U.S., foreign equities, both develop in emerging markets, foreign bonds, take advantage of what I think will be a historic rise in uh, gold and silver prices by having exposure to those metals, but also to the companies uh, that mine them and, and, and make, you know, make a profit from uh, selling them. So I think there's not only a way to protect your wealth, but a real way to enhance it. If you understand the dynamics of what's really going on, and then you position yourself for the end game. That's, uh, we've got a lot to unpackage then, uh, Peter. So I'm <laughs> curious, you, you mentioned you packed up your fund and moved to Puerto Rico, get out of the dollar. I mean, your mind must be exploding then with the things that you hear coming out of California, uh, the mm -hmm. things going on with GameStop, the things going on with potential inflation coming. Tell me a little bit, what, what maybe let's start with what got you out of California? I mean, I can only guess, but uh, let's start <laughs> Well, I, I haven't lived in California since about 2005. So my broker dealer was based out of Connecticut. But I had my asset management company that was headquartered in Newport Beach, California. But obviously, what really drove me to move the company from California was the high tax rate that I was looking at in California. And, you know, initially, my plan was to go abroad. I was looking at Ireland. I was looking at Singapore to take that company. But then I heard about Puerto Rico, and it was a much better deal and a lot closer to home. Uh, so I moved the company to Puerto Rico in about 2013, 2014. Uh, but then in a few years after coming down to Puerto Rico quite a bit myself, I really fell in love with the place and I get even better tax breaks living here. So I'm still in the dollar. You know, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. We're not a state, we're a territory, but the U.S. dollar is still the currency. And so everybody is dealing in dollars down here. So what I get out of is the income tax. 
and that's a huge savings. But the inflation tax, I think, is going to be even worse for a lot of people. And the way I avoid the inflation tax is by not owning what's being taxed, which is U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar denominated investments. So I'm here in Puerto Rico where I have zero capital gains tax and I only have to pay a 4% tax on the money I earn doing work. Right. So it's pretty much I get to keep almost everything I earn. So I enjoy a level of freedom here in Puerto Rico that I can never enjoy in the 50 states. So this really is the freest place for Americans to live is Puerto Rico. So, you know, come on down. The weather's great uh, and the tax climate's even better. Um, but the inflation tax is going to hit everybody. And but the way to avoid the inflation tax and you don't have to move to Puerto Rico to get out of that tax, uh, you have to get out of the dollar. Although the way the inflation tax will hit you if you don't move to California to Puerto Rico is through capital gains, because, you know, if there's a lot of inflation and the dollar loses value and prices go up, let's say you buy a stock, for example, and the cost of living doubles, right? Everything that you want to buy is more expensive. Food doubles, your rent doubles, your insurance doubles or everything gets everything is twice as expensive. And so now your stock doubles. Well, in reality, your stock hasn't done anything. I mean, it's basically in real terms, it has the same value as it had before it doubled because everything that you want to buy with your proceeds when you sell it has also doubled in price, right? So you really have had no change. But then the government says, oh, you have a capital gains and we're going to tax that. But it's not a real gain. It's just on paper. In reality, after you pay the tax, you actually have a big loss because now you don't have enough money left over to cover the increased cost of living. So in Puerto Rico, you solve that uh, inflation, additional inflation tax problem because your capital gains is zero. So they can't turn a phony gain into taxable income through, you know, through the tax code. So there's a lot so of advantages. But number one, people should just get out of the dollar wherever they're living and then take a look at Puerto Rico uh, as a as a as a as a better way to mitigate the damage. I mean, I, I think that's fascinating. I think it's it's really what what you've done is it's almost like you've arbitraged the tax system. Where here in California, I'm paying fifty five percent of all yeah. my money <laughs> is gone. Why, right? Why do you uh, want to do that? Do you you know do you know what you, you know you, you know about the medieval serfs? You ever hear about oh, no, tell me, and, tell, Huh? Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so everybody thinks that was this horrible system, right? You had the lords of the manor and they were exploiting the lowly serfs, right? Well, what made you a serf is that you worked the land and you had to give 25% of what you produced to the Lord, right? So you got to keep 75%. So basically the serfs were in the equivalent of a 25% tax bracket. Right? Oh well, you're in, so basically Californians, you have to strive to elevate yourself to the level of a surf, because I don't think there would have been any medieval <clears throat> surfs that would have put up with a Lord that demanded 50 <laughs> percent of, of yeah. what they produced. So, you know, let alone more than how half. unfree you are up there. <laughs> no kidding. So what you're suggesting is and, and certainly we'll talk about you know, what some of the recent things with GameStop and inflation and, and stimulus and that as well. But with this, something you've mentioned a few times now is getting out of dollar denominated assets. So are you, you know, 
Is it bad? Do you think to to like how would you diversify a portfolio? Let's put it that way. Are you you know seventy percent stocks, some gold, and some real estate, or how would you diversify if you were you know recommending this to the, the American watching right now, trying to get ahead and protect themselves? Yeah, well, the the most risky things to own really long term is just the paper, which would be the physical dollars, right? You know, dollars stuffed under your mattress, right? The cash you have, you know. Uh, are lying around, uh, but also any paper dollars, you know, where you've loaned them out to somebody and you own a bond, whether you own a U.S. Treasury bond, a municipal, you know, bond, uh, corporate bond, whatever, you know, paper that you're just going to get paid back dollars in the future, right? That's mm -hmm. going to get wiped out. If you have, you know, cash value in an insurance policy, you know, maybe you have a whole life policy with a cash value surrender policy. Uh, an annuity, a fixed annuity that pays you a quantity of dollars, right? All of those things, that's the worst thing to own because inflation just wipes those out, right? Um, then I think if you own U.S. stocks, all right, you own a real asset because you own a business and all their plant and equipment and, you know, whatever they own, their intellectual property and it's an operating company. But to the extent that most of their customers are in America, <clears throat> they're just going to be earning dollars. And while they may be able to raise their prices in an inflationary environment, they may not be able to raise them enough to compensate for uh, the loss in value, especially if we're in a big recession uh, with a lot of inflation. So rather than taking refuge in U.S. stocks, and that would same thing would go for real estate, right? Because if you own real estate, right, you're out of paper, you own something real. But if you want to rent it out, who are your potential tenants? Well, they're people that have dollars, right? I mean, it's hard to rent out your U.S. property for Swiss francs or you know something <laughs> like that. Um, so what you want to do is you want to get income-producing assets outside the United States that generate income in, in other currencies, not the dollar. And you want to be in countries that have better uh, you know, underlying fundamentals. They're not going to have the currency crisis that we're going to have. They're not going to have this massive economic collapse. And they're not on the verge of, you know, going all in on socialism like we are, you know. So you can look at other places in the world uh, that are freer, uh, that have less uh, regulation, lower tax rates, uh, lower deficits, better balance of trade, creditor nations instead of debtor nations. Uh, and invest there, buy stocks there, buy real estate there. Although when so we what's, buy what's real an example estate of that? I mean, if if you don't mind, uh, you mentioned the Swiss francs. Are, aren't they, you know, relatively high tax as well, forty plus percent, and and also no. relatively liberal with, no. with their spending? Switzerland's tax rates are are you know considerably lower than the rates you have in the United States. Um, and but more importantly, is the Swiss economy. I mean, it's far more mm -hmm. stable. Uh, you know, I mean, the Swiss aren't out there living beyond their means like like the Americans are. I mean, so, you know, we have a huge problem uh, that a lot of the world doesn't have. I mean, every country has kind of followed America's lead in this reckless monetary policy. So to a degree, inflation is going to be a problem everywhere. It's just going to be a bigger problem here in the U.S. And what I think the end game is, is where the U.S. dollar loses its reserve currency status. Oh, wow. And the world basically turns to another reserve, which I believe will be gold, because the dollar replaced gold. Before the dollar was the primary reserve, gold was the reserve. And the reason the dollar became the reserve was because it was not only backed by gold, but 
redeemable in gold. So the dollar was thought to be as good as gold. And so that's how we were able to get the world to hold dollars. Plus, we gave them interest on their dollars because they could loan them to us in the form of U.S. treasuries. And yep. now they can get a return where on gold, they just stored it in a vault and they got nothing. Right. So Does I think what's going to happen is the world's going to go back to that, right? I was wondering, but, yeah. <laughs> Are we going backwards then by doing well, that? Well, actually, is, is it's that... forwards because it was ah. a step backwards going to the dollar. That was, you know, that was the wrong move. So we're going to go, we're going to advance back to sound money, which is a, you know, a, a, a newer concept. It's a, you know, it's, it's a good concept that enables, uh, you know, faster economic growth and, and higher living standards for, you know, the, the great majority of people. But the transformation is going to be particularly difficult for America because foreign countries, okay, so instead of earning dollars, they'll earn gold. But now right. America is going to have to earn gold instead of printing right. dollars, right? Because we can't print gold. It has to be mined. And since you know, we, if we don't mine it, we have to earn it, which means we have to export more than we import. We have to start running trade surpluses instead of deficits to accumulate mm -hmm. gold to back our currency. So it's gonna be a big game changer for America more than anybody else. And the American standard of living is gonna plunge because Americans are gonna stop consuming. We're gonna to have to become a nation of savers and producers rather than a nation of borrowers and spenders. Well, so you, you mentioned faster economic growth and higher living standards by basically going back to the old standard, but forward by going to, to a gold standard essentially. and how how is that? I guess you you certainly would then stand completely opposite from Jerome Powell, let's say, who suggests <laughs> that we should be printing uh, money essentially to get to faster a faster or larger economic engine now, which would allow us to pay off our debts quicker in their future or in the future is their argument. Why why do you stand so opposed to the Janet Yellen and the Jerome Powell of the world who say, hey, if we spend big now, we're going to have such a strong economy that we don't have to worry about inflation. We'll pay off all our debt and we'll be we'll be in a better position. Well, we actually have different agendas. You see, I actually care about the country and I want it to prosper and succeed in the long run. Whereas what Powell and Yellen want is to kick the can down the road, uh, you know, uh, to the, the next election. So all they're trying to do is delay the day of reckoning. They don't care or even understand how much worse that day is going to be because of the delay, because all the delay does is allow the underlying problems to get worse. And that's huh. basically what they're doing. Now, do you what happens if inflation doesn't come, though? Does that start throwing a wrench in the gear of we need to move away from the dollar? I mean, the, the odd thing that's happening now and we've seen, obviously, over the last 10, 11 years is we've been in this quantitative easing phase, actually, probably more like 12 years now. And, and that inflation hasn't come yet. What, no, what's your well, take on that? Well, that's because the inflation is already here. Right. You, do, you don't have to wait for it to arrive. Quantitative easing is inflation. Mm -hmm. It's just a different name for the same thing, except that, you know, people don't necessarily like inflation. So if the Fed said our policy is creating inflation, right? People say, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't like inflation. That makes my cost yeah. of living go up. So instead of saying we're gonna create inflation, they'll say, oh, we're just gonna do quantitative easing. Oh, that, yeah. sound, that sounds pretty good, right? So they, but that's inflation because inflation literally means to expand. That's where the word comes from, inflate, mm -hmm. right? A balloon inflates, right? It expands. Sure. You're filling it with air. Prices don't expand. Right? They can go up, they can go down, but they don't expand. So what is expanding? 
It's the money supply, right? If you go back and get an old Webster's Dictionary and you look yeah. up the word inflation, that's how it's defined, an expansion of the money supply, right? Mm -hmm. Deflation is a contraction. Just like a balloon can deflate, your money supply can deflate. Now, we don't contract the money supply. We keep expanding it. So sure. we keep creating inflation. Print. Now, <laughs> right. Now, one of the results of expanding the money supply is that prices will go up. Right. So that's an effect of inflation, but that's not the inflation itself. So the question that you're really asking me is, when are we going to see all this inflation show up to a greater degree at the supermarket? Right. right? Stuff like yes. that. Right. And it's hard to say. Right. I mean, we know eventually that's where it's all going. But right now, a lot of the inflation has pushed up asset prices. Right. That's yeah. also an yeah. effect of inflation. Stock market is going up because of inflation. It's not because of higher earnings or a better economy. It's inflation that is bidding up stock prices. The same thing with real estate prices. Same thing with uh, bond prices or all sorts of collectibles or, or rare things or cryptocurrencies. I mean, inflation is driving all these prices up. But eventually, all of that inflation is going to go into consumer goods because assets are a means to an end, right? People, let's say you buy a stock. You're not right. buying a stock because you want to hang the certificate on the wall and admire <laughs> it, right? You're buying a stock because you hope to earn more money that you can use to buy more stuff. So right. ultimately, the stock is a means to get more stuff. So when people want to sell their stocks and buy the stuff, that's when the price of the stuff really starts to go up. So we're going to see this. And the problem is, the government's going to have no way to rein it in. You see, in the past, when consumer prices started to rise too much, they would right. tighten up on the money supply. They would raise can't interest rates. Right. Yeah. But they can't do that now because thanks to the Fed, everybody is so levered up with debt. If they tried to pull the rug out from under that house of cards, the whole thing is going to collapse. So the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place. And mm -hmm. so inflation is going to run rampant. Uh, which is why you better be prepared for it. Now, so, I mean, you must certainly cringe at the thought that The Economist reported uh, last month that 25% of all of the currency or money that we have in circulation right now was created in 2020 through stimulus <laughs> or, or whatnot throughout, you know, countries throughout the world, because it's not just us. It's Japan's doing QE, essentially. China's doing stimulus. The Eurozone's been doing it. Uh, now, what do you say, though, to the potential that, hey, we could keep printing money if the velocity of money goes down? What if people are becoming more investor savvy or more saver, you know, pay down debt, and maybe they're just not spending as much, and maybe that's not going to lead to higher prices. So maybe we just keep printing. <laughs> well, yeah, you can you can you can pretend that that's the case mm. until you're confronted with a crisis. And the problem is, if you do that, it's like, you know, You've got all this rope, and but if you fasten it into a noose, you know, and jump, you know, put it right, you're gonna, you're gonna <laughs> hang just because you have a longer rope. It just, you know, as long, if there's enough distance between the, the, the limb and, you know, and, and the ground, right? That's what we've done. We just assume that, oh, okay, we're, you know, we can postpone it, but we can't. And the problem is once inflation becomes a problem, we have no way to deal with it because there's only one thing you can do, right? So interest rate and prices really start to rise, right? The Fed says they're comfortable with 2% inflation. 
Right. Now they say, okay, it's okay if it goes a little bit above. What that okay. is, we're not really sure, you know, because they don't know. But let's say it's 3% and they say, okay, that's not that bad. It's not that <laughs> far. You know, we were at one, now we're at three. It averages out to two. Then right. it gets to four. Then it gets to five, six. At what point, oh my God, it's 6%, it's 7%. We need to do something. Now, if you let inflation get to six or 7%, how do you stop it? Well, maybe you have to raise interest rates to 10% or 15%. But I mean, we can't even afford 1%. We have so much debt, it's impossible. So once that inflation genie is out of the bottle, we don't have a prayer of putting it back in. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Fed pretends that it wants more inflation is because it knows that it can't do anything about it, right? That's an old saying that if you're being run out of town, you know, get to the head of the crowd and pretend you're leading the parade. And that's what, you know, the Fed wants to do. They want to pretend that, you know, they want inflation. That's a good thing. The reality uh, is that's an awful thing, but they're not going to do anything to protect us from it because they've set up a situation where in their mind, the cure for inflation is worse than the disease. So how do you respond to people who say that we're in a deflationary environment because of not only technology, but the flattening the Phillips curve, where even when we get to this full employment, we we're not seeing that those prices go up. Yeah, you know, we go, you know, where we were before, obviously, the recession. And again, that deflationary yeah. push from technology. Well, again, deflation would be a contraction of the money supply, and that ain't happening, right? Ah. But if you want to talk about consumer prices going down, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, the natural tendency in any market economy is for prices to go down. That is the beauty of capitalism right. in that it lowers the cost of living because um, somebody invents something and then over time they improve on it, they find more efficient ways of producing it, uh, they get economies of scale, and now prices progressively come down, right? Think about, you know, we're doing this podcast, we're using computers, we're using uh, television monitors. Think about how expensive these things used to be. Right. Yes. The very first television that was ever invented back in the 1940s, maybe I don't know what exactly when it was, but it was like a huge piece of furniture. Right. Uh, uh, maybe it was, you know, the, the size of a big cabinet. And then it had like a two inch screen and <laughs> it was black and white. And there was one channel to watch and maybe they broadcast for two hours a day. And it cost about the same as you would spend on a new car. Right. Right. And so, so it basically stunk and it was really, really expensive. The only people who could afford to buy it were really, really rich people who bought it as a novelty. Hey, look at my TV. Right. I got one TV. I guess I'm, you know, I can afford it. Right. Now, the reason that everybody has TVs in every room now, the reason we have television sets in our, tel you know, in our phones is because they got really cheap <laughs> because <Yeah>. capitalism <laughs> found a way to make it better, smaller, cheaper. Right. And so that's the beauty of capitalism. I mean, it's crazy when you hear these economists say that we need rising prices, because if the first TV was the cheapest TV and the price just went up, none of us would own them. The same thing right. with cell phones or anything else. So we have a tendency to to have prices go down. And that is a good thing. Contrary to what these economists are saying, it's falling prices that leads to more demand because you can right. buy more stuff if it's cheaper. And companies make more money if the price of their products can come down because mm -hmm. they make it on volume, right? They sure. sell more stuff 
if they can sell it cheaper. Because not only are the prices going down, but their cost of production are going down. The key is not the price, but the margin. The difference between what you can sell your goods for and what it costs you to produce them. And if you have a lower cost, you can sell more, right? And then you make more money. So you have that factor that's always there that's pushing down prices. But the governments are counteracting that by creating inflation. So sometimes inflation doesn't cause prices to rise. It just prevents them from falling to the degree that they would have fallen absent all that money printing. That is a real loss. But what's what's really been acting to keep U.S. consumer prices down is our ability to run massive trade deficits, which are at all time record highs. We just recently hit the biggest merchandise trade deficit in U.S. history. We have a record trade deficit with China. We have a record trade deficit with Mexico. So we didn't win the, tr- the, the, the trade war under Trump. You know, we lost. Uh, we're losing bigger than ever on trade. But in the short run, that is helping to keep a lid on our domestic consumer prices because we take all that money the Fed prints and we send it over to China. We send it over to Mexico. So it's not here. And what do they do? They send us actual stuff that we can right. buy. And that keeps a lid on prices. But what I'm thinking is going to happen is Mexico and China, everybody else isn't going to want our paper anymore. In fact, they're going to send back the paper that they have and try to buy our stuff. <laughs> and then prices are going to go through the roof in the U.S. because all that inflation we exported is going to come back. So maybe if you could, for for the layperson, uh, explain why why is it bad that maybe we run a trade deficit, and and why is it bad? So two part question: Why is it bad that we want run a trade deficit? And the other, if price declines are normal, why not run the money printer a little bit and hand out those stimmy checks? Well, the second question first: Well, because doing that prevents the prices from falling, and that mm-hmm. represents a tax because now people are denied the benefits of those lower prices. And remember, you know, if if the cost of living goes down, if certain things that I'm buying become less expensive, that frees up purchasing power. Now I can spend money in places that I couldn't spend it before. And that's mm-hmm. going to relate, you know, result in economic growth in other areas, employment in other areas. So we miss out on all that if the government inflates away those gains. But to go back to your first question about why a trade deficit is bad, I mean, in the short run, Um, it's good in that we live beyond our means, right? We get to consume (laughs) stuff that we didn't produce, right? Like if you individually were running a a deficit personally, meaning that Mm -hmm. let's say you earned 50,000 a year, but you spent 60 or $70,000 a year, right? And you got the difference by, you know, using a credit card or taking out a loan or something like that. So while you are living beyond your means and spending money that you didn't earn, life is good. Right. Because you're buying stuff that you really can't afford. Right. But now you're asking me, why is that a bad thing? Well, because eventually you got to pay back that money. Right. And how do you pay back that money? Well, that means that you have to actually start consuming less in the future to make up for the fact that you consumed so much more in Mm. the past or your present. But now you also have to pay the interest on what you borrowed. Right. Because you borrowed, you know, now you got to pay the money back with interest. So the trade deficits are simply a reflection of the fact that we are living beyond our means and we are accumulating liabilities, debts to the rest of the world that have to be repaid at a diminished future consumption. Meanwhile, the people who are running trade surpluses 
who are mm. producing more than they consume, they get to take those surpluses and invest them and accumulate real assets in America that may generate income. So at the end of the day, Americans, you know, we become serfs in our own country because we sold out all of our assets. In order to consume today, we sell out our productive assets to our creditors. And now they own the real estate, they own the stocks, right? And, you know, we basically sold all the seed corn uh, and now we're sharecroppers, right? Or, you know, we, you know, <laughs> I see. You know, we sold off all our farming equipment and stuff like that. So look, this is how countries go broke, right? When America was a young country, uh, we did run trade deficits because mm -hmm. we took the money and we invested it. We didn't borrow to consume, but we became very rich. And then we were running huge trade surpluses because we were so productive. And that's how we went from being the world's biggest debtor to the world's biggest creditor. It was because we invested all of our trade surpluses and we became really rich. When rich run countries start running deficits, that's how they become poor countries. And we've so run deficits for so long that we're already poor. We just don't I know see. it yet. I mean, I think it's it's a fascinating argument what you made about uh, basically by preventing consumer prices from falling with the money printing, you're actually hurting poor people because you're making it harder for people to afford products. Fascinating yes. argument. I mean, you're essentially saying the money printing is a regressive tax on on essentially poor people, where that would be more of a more effective. Well, absolutely. I mean, it is it hits the poor, the middle class, the hardest mm -hmm. because they don't have the assets that would benefit from inflation, or they don't have the type of debt. Because if you take on debt to buy yeah. an asset, right? Inflation benefits you by wiping out your debt. You know that from real estate, right? So if you yeah, borrow yeah. money to buy some rental property, over time, you know, the inflation wipes out the debt that you owe on the property, but you still like have some the inflation. income produce, producing <laughs> asset, right? But the poor don't borrow to buy rental property. They borrow mm -hmm. to buy a television set. <laughs> you know, and sure. after a few years, it's, you know, it's not worth very much or they borrow to take a vacation, which, you know, what's all the money is gone. They borrow to buy clothing. A lot of them borrow to buy gas. They borrow to buy food. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, they're just they're, they're not, you know, benefiting. They're going into debt. But inflation is eroding the value of their paychecks. What they're mm. earning is worth less and less and less as their cost of living goes higher and higher. And if they manage to save some money. If you have some poor people and you know they're not in debt, but they have some money in the bank in a savings account, inflation is just destroying the value of the savings. Well, how about Biden? He's going to raise the minimum wage, and he thinks <laughs> that you know what we can do is uh, you know basically, hey, who cares if we have a bunch of debt now? We'll pay it off with a stronger economy later. What do you say to those two things? Well, first of all. We're not going to have a stronger economy because of more government spending. We're going to have a weaker economy. What they want to do is not pay off the debt, but repudiate it with inflation, which is what's going to happen, which is like a default, only kind of a stealth default. Uh, but all the minimum wage does is make it that much harder for people to lawfully be employed. I mean, that's if you think about what the minimum wage is, it's the rate that a worker must convince an employer to pay him in order to legally have a job, right? Because everybody, you know, sells their labor, right? If you think about each worker is a, a businessman and he has, he has one product, you know, his, his own labor, right? And so right. you go out in the market and you try to find somebody who wants to buy your labor, right? That wants to give you a, 
a paycheck and employ you. Well, you know, what do you have to offer? It's, well, what are your skills, right? When you're a worker and you're going to all these various employers, here's what I can do for you. These are my skills. Here's how much value I can add to your organization, right? Now, if you have a lot of skills and you can add a lot of value, maybe I can add $20 of value an hour, $30 an hour. Okay, the minimum wage is going to affect me, right? I, I can get a job. But let's say you're a young kid or even in your mid-20s, but whatever, for whatever reason, you just don't have a lot of skills. There's not that much right. you can do, but you can do something. So let's say you can add $12 worth of value to employers. Okay, well, you have to convince the employer to pay you $15. You ain't getting a job because you only got $12 an hour worth of skills. Now, if there's no minimum wage or the minimum wage is $7.25, you can get a job. But the higher they make the minimum wage, the more people that get priced out of the labor market. That's why the best minimum wage is zero. That way, nobody gets priced out of the minimum. Uh, everybody can get a job. But the beauty of getting a job, and people say, well, how could you live? There's no minimum wage. What if people got a job at $5 an hour? Right. Well, that's better than having no job, right? And if you couldn't convince somebody to pay you $6 an hour, it's because five is the most you can get. Because after all, it's a competitive market. If I can deliver $10 an hour worth of value, I, you know, no one's going to get away with paying me five because somebody else will outbid them and, and go say, or I'll work for myself. I mean, nobody forces anybody to take a job. So if you can make more money being self-employed, then you won't, you won't work for somebody. You work for yourself. The reason you take a job is because you can make more money working for somebody else than you can make working on your own. But the best way, if you only have $5 an hour worth of skills, right? The best way to make $15, $20 an hour in the future is to take that $5 an hour job and yeah. then develop skills on the job. That's where you get the best training at a job. That's where you learn. That's where you become more valuable. If you make it illegal for the guy who has $5 an hour worth of skills to get a job because you set the minimum wage at 15, that guy or gal is never getting a job, <laughs> which may be the real reason that the government likes the minimum wage is because these people are permanently unemployable. And so the only way they can get money other than crime is by the government giving them welfare. Mm. And the government likes that because once they make you dependent on welfare, then you're so afraid of losing that check that you vote for the, the, the politicians that are providing the welfare. So it, it basically is a way for Democrats to guarantee a bunch of voters because they've taken away all their hope of getting a job. And wow. now the only way they can survive is with a government check. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, when you look at California, you've got uh, literally 39 million plus people. One third are on Medi-Cal to receive support just to pay for health care. Uh, and, and they rely on the government for that purpose, the California government for that purpose. But now what the question is, what do you say to somebody who's a single mom in her 30s, divorced, two kids, working two jobs, uh, you know, making uh, the California minimum wage, whatever it is now, 10, 11 bucks an hour, paycheck to paycheck, can't get ahead, doesn't have an extra minute to even watch a TV show, let alone improve her skills. She's not improving her skills to get a better job other than maybe, let's say, working uh, at, you know, a restaurant or whatever. What, what do you say to somebody in a situation like that? Don't they need some support from the government to maybe be able to, to, pump up their bank account a little bit so they can take a shift off and try to study? What's your take? 
No, I think the reason that they're struggling is because we've had too much government in the past. What we have to do mm. is free these people from the burden of government. So we need to well, get rid of their taxes, get rid of the payroll tax, social security tax, Medicare tax, get rid mm. of all these rules and regulations that are costing her employer a lot of money that otherwise could have been paid to her in terms of higher wages, but instead it's spent on government uh, regulation. So employers could pay their workers more money if they didn't have to spend send so much money uh, to the government. But also you mentioned healthcare. The reason healthcare is so expensive is because of the government. If we got the government out of healthcare, the cost would collapse. The same thing with education. The reason that college is so expensive is because of all these government subsidies. Before the government got involved in healthcare and education, they were inexpensive. And the free market is great at making education and healthcare cheaper. Just like it's great at making cell phones cheaper and computers, it brings yeah. down the cost of healthcare and improves the quality of healthcare at the same time. The reason it's not happening is because we have all this government involvement. So get the government out of education, get the government out of healthcare, let the free market bring down the cost and bring up the quality and just have a vibrant free market economy that is the best thing. What, what lifts people out of poverty is free market capitalism. All these government promises of more programs and more help, they have never worked. What they do is they impoverish the people that they're trying to lift out of poverty. They make them worse off. That's what happens. I mean, socialism destroys every economy that it infects. It's a disease. Wow, that, a big statement there. Socialism destroys every economy that it infects. Wow. Uh, now, I mean, on, on that note then, so government getting out of our healthcare and schools, isn't there a risk that we go back to what we had, for example, pre-Obamacare, where, you know, there were lifetime caps, people who had no, well, cancer first of all, all of a sudden get Pre-Obamacare, we still had a lot of government involvement in education. Uh -huh. So I want to go way, I want to go back before that. Way back. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I want to go back before, you know, the, uh, the, the, the great society programs of the 1960s. Even better, oh, wow. we go back to before the New Deal programs of the 1930s. I mean, America's heyday was the late 19th century as far as free market capitalism. That's where we had the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. That's where America became the wealthiest country in the world. That's when all four of my grandparents came to America from Europe in search of freedom. When my grandparents came here, there was no welfare, there was no minimum wage, there was no food stamps, there was no Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, there was nothing. Why did they come? There wasn't a single government program. They came because they didn't want government programs. They wanted freedom. They wanted the opportunity that comes along with freedom. They came with nothing, no money. They couldn't even speak the language. Right, right. <laughs> and they all succeeded. And they told their friends and they all came over. I mean, there were millions and millions of people from all over the world coming to America with no government programs whatsoever. Right? How do you That's know what I want to recreate. I want to recreate yeah. the type of free market capitalism. The beauty is that today we have all sorts of technology that we didn't have 100 years ago. So sure, if you combine 21st century technology with 19th century freedom, I mean, that's the best of everything. And of course, had we maintained the same level of freedom throughout mm -hmm. the 20th century that we had, you know, at the at when the century began, we would have so much more technology now. I mean, who knows 
the type of world we would have if we maintained that level of economic freedom throughout the last century. Unfortunately, we'll never know because we didn't. We need to repair the damage now, though. What, what do you say to people who look back, though, at the Industrial Revolution and they see, you know, child labor abuses and massive pollution and, and, and poverty or people living on the streets without any kind of support or, or, or you know, they're just like wrong. Survival they, they, they don't understand. I mean, first of all, you know, they don't understand before the children were working in the factories, they were working yeah, yeah. on farms. It's not like they weren't working. Right. So the parents had their kids working on the farms, which was actually yeah. harder, uh, riskier type work. And the reason the parents had their kids working, it wasn't because they were mean and they wanted to exploit them. It's because they wanted to feed them. And that was the only way to do it. I mean, you had yes. to take advantage of all the labor in the family. It was capitalism, the productivity that was the result of capitalism and, 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 and all that innovation that enabled parents not to have to put, put their kids to work. But when the Industrial Revolution came around, the kids actually became more productive and they had jobs that were less dangerous than the ones that they had before. But sure. ultimately, capitalism made the parents, made the father so productive that the kids didn't have to work anymore, that the women, the wives didn't have to work. It was capitalism that ended child labor, not government laws, not labor unions. That's all a myth. The left wants us you to believe that but for government and labor unions, all of our kids would be working in factories, which is nonsense. I mean, the reason that kids are still working in other countries is because they're still poor. You know, and mm -hmm. if you prevent those kids from working, they starve. And, you know, work is better than starvation. But if you don't want them to have to work, what we really need is more capitalism and less government in those countries so that the parents can be rich enough and productive enough to no longer need their kids to work. So what do you, I mean, how do we, how do we help, uh, or, or do we, or, or like, what do you say the, going back to that mom, you know, she doesn't have time to wait for the government to unwind itself. Does she just YOLO some GME calls or what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, hope, let's hope not, at least not now. I mean, uh -oh. maybe if she had a time machine, she could have bought them a week ago, <laughs> but, um, look, no, I mean, we don't want to encourage people that are living on edge to just go into a casino and gamble, which is basically what that is. But no, I understand a lot of people are in very difficult circumstances because of all the government we've had in the past. And yes, yeah, you know, it's, you know, people are, are going to have a tough time, but you just can't say, well, the government's just going to give everybody who's in trouble money because that's going to make them in even more trouble. I mean, yes, initially they're going to get a check and they're going to feel good and they're going to go out and buy something. But eventually right. those checks are going to buy nothing. What good is it to give everybody a bunch of worthless money? I mean, that's the direction we're headed. So if we don't change the course, we end up with hyperinflation. And, and, and that's the worst thing you could possibly do to that woman. Do you think we're going back to Weimar Republic days, wheelbarrows of money? Is, do you really think that? Well, you know, I don't think we'll have to use wheelbarrows because, you know, we created electronically now. So we wouldn't really <laughs> yes. have to print that much money. Um, but I mean, the same concept could yeah. happen where we wipe out and remember, you know, the, 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 the Reichmark, you know, lost all of its value. I mean, pretty much let's say the dollar only loses 90% of its value, which would be, you know, you know, not nearly as bad as Weimar Republic, but if the dollar loses 90% of its value, your cost of living goes up tenfold. 
Yeah. Right. So imagine that. I mean, imagine somebody who's retiring and they're like, okay, I've got retirement income of $50,000 a year. And they think mm -hmm. I can live on that $50,000 a year. Well, if the cost of living goes up tenfold, that $50,000 is going to be like $5,000. So right. maybe you can't live on $5,000 because that's really what you're going to have. Even though it's still going to be 50,000, everything you want to buy, just add a zero to it. Right. Oh, so stuff gosh, that yeah. used to cost a hundred dollars now cost a thousand. Right. So mm -hmm. the, the, and that's just with the dollar losing 90 percent. Right. And it can lose a lot more. Now, what if you're wrong, though? What if uh, what if we don't get that inflation? Well, I don't think I'm wrong. Um, um, you know, it, it's possible that it's happens later. Uh, but in the meantime, look, you know, look at how weak economic growth has been over the last several decades. All of this is because of government interference and the free market. Even if we continue going the way we've been going, yeah. uh, things are going to keep deteriorating. I mean, why do you think Donald Trump was elected? Because Donald Trump, at least yeah. as a candidate, told the truth about how bad things were. And that mm -hmm. message resonated with a lot of voters who were being spoon-fed a bunch of nonsense from the government and from Wall Street about how the economy was booming, how we had a great recovery. And Trump said, no, I feel your pain. The economy sucks. This is this is horrible. And, and voters, yeah, you're right. It is bad. I know it's bad yeah. because I'm living in reality. I'm not living on Wall Street. I'm on Main Street and times mm -hmm. are hard. And so those people voted for Trump. Problem was, as soon as Trump was part of the establishment, you know, even if he was a fringe element of it, once he became an incumbent president, then he completely did a 180 and he was selling the same nonsense. Oh, the economy is great now. It's the greatest economy in the history of the world, even though nothing had changed. <laughs> so, you know, the, all he did is make the bubble bigger. We had bigger deficits under Trump, bigger trade deficits, bigger budget deficits. And in fact, when Trump was a candidate, he criticized Janet Yellen. You have interest rates too low, too much QE. This is inflating a stock market bubble. This isn't good. I'm right. not going to reappoint you. I'm going to find another guy, my own guy, who's not going to Right. <laughs> And then as soon as he puts Powell in office, now he's like, what are you doing raising interest rates? They got to be lower. Oh, you're at zero. That's not low enough. Zero is too high. We need negative rates. Can we print more money? So he, be he began to advocate everything he criticized when he was a candidate. He advocated even more of it as president. So that's the unfortunate reality and the hypocrisy of the Trump administration. So if this inflation is coming, then uh should you mentioned get out of dollar denominated assets do we just get all in on stocks and buying our own home and fine my paycheck's going right into gold or, or silver crypto what do i do and and do i just keep doing that because that way if it doesn't happen hey i'm invested if it does happen hey i'm invested well look even if there isn't massive inflation if you invest in the right stocks and the right real estate, you can still do really well, right? I mean, right. people have been investing successfully in stocks and real estate, and we haven't had a complete crisis. Now, you know, you don't want to buy the wrong stocks. You don't want to buy, you know, you don't want to overpay. I mean, and people are going to lose money in the stock market. Uh, but I think the stocks that we're buying in the countries that we're investing, the U.S. doesn't have to collapse for these investments to end up being you know, good investments with good returns. It's just that if the dollar does collapse, there'll be even better returns and there'll be, you know, there'll be the difference between poverty and, and, and having a comfortable life. 
So I think they can be very important. I would scratch cryptos off the list, though. I mean, I don't think oh, okay. that that I don't think anybody should be buying cryptos. And, you know, I know people want to give me a lot of flack for that because, you know, had you bought cryptocurrencies a few years ago or 10 years ago, you could be a millionaire or a billionaire, whatever, which all that is true. Right. Just like had I gone back in time, you know, and bought those calls uh, on, on GameStop. Right. Yeah. But we don't have a time machine and we can only invest for the future. And right, right. I don't think the future looks bright for these cryptocurrencies. I think they're all going to crash. Uh, can Bitcoin go up more before it crashes? Of course. I mean, it's at sure. 33,000, 34,000, right? So, I mean, can it go to 100,000? It's possible. Can it go to a million? Less, po you know, less probable. I mean, it could. I seriously doubt that that's going to happen. But look, it got to 30,000. You know, I didn't think it would get that high. I kind of thought it topped out at 20. Although before it got to 20, I was thinking maybe you can go to 50. I didn't know. It was like a crazy bubble in, in 2017. There was no way to know like where that thing was going to peak. But then in 2018, it collapsed back down to, you know, 3000 ish. And it looked like, you know, the top was in. Uh, we managed to double that and get up to 40,000 or a little higher. Uh, but ultimately this is, you know, really just a Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme, chain letter. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, any one of those things exactly. It's got elements of all three, but it's mm -hmm. the same dynamic. So I think eventually after this whole thing has collapsed and everybody's been wiped out, and unfortunately we're going to get a lot of government regulation as a result of this, which is going to be another unfortunate consequence of the Bitcoin bubble. Um, apart from the people that lose money. But I think that um, in the future, it's not just going to be a Ponzi scheme, right? Chain, they're actually going to have a word. I think they're going to call it a Bitcoin scheme, right? I think that, you know, it's going to describe the particular type of scheme that these cryptocurrencies are. Because before Ponzi came up with a Ponzi scheme, that didn't exist because that's a guy's sure. last name. Yeah, right? yeah. His name was Ponzi. So they, 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 nobody even knew what it was until he invented it. And then after right. he invented it and ended up going to jail, they then came up with, all right, so it's a Ponzi scheme. So the cryptocurrency thing, the Bitcoin, is brand new. It didn't exist until Bitcoin created it. So after this thing collapses and everybody loses money, I think in the future, to the extent that something similar is tried, they can say, oh, that's a Bitcoin scheme. The guys, you know, a classic Bitcoin Interesting. scheme. Uh, right. And, and this reference to really the pyramid is that you're really investing in something with the hope that somebody else is going to pay you more for it. Uh, and, and That's the nature, else. right? The nature of all pyramids or Ponzi's or chain letters is the greater mm. fool, right? Okay. It's always that the way you make money is somebody else putting in new money to replace your money. Either, you know, you're, you're getting new money to pay old money out or you're buying an asset or something and you need somebody else is going to pay more for it and that person is buying it because they think someone else will pay even more and, and and so on but eventually you run out of fools i mean it can't happen forever you know there's a difference between an actual asset like you you're in real estate right so you can buy real estate and if you get good rent you have good cash flow from a property you don't have to sell it to anybody just own it Right. You, when you leave it to your children in your will, nobody ever has to sell it. The asset generates income. 
when you buy a stock, you never have to sell that stock, own it. The stock will pay dividends. Even if it doesn't pay dividends, the company will take their earnings and buy back stock. So they're shrinking the number of shares. So the price will go up. No one has to buy it, right? Assets have income. Bonds, you know, in normal times, bonds pay interest. So assets have a return. Commodities, which would not be an asset like oil or wheat or, you know, or gold, they have a use case. Oil, you know, I drive my car with it, right? I can right. use it, you know, you heat your house or whatever you're doing. Uh, uh, wheat, corn, I eat it, right? I, it's going to satisfy my hunger. It's going to keep me alive. I need nourishment, right? Gold, what do I do with gold? Make jewelry out of it. It's a luxury good. It's a great, con best conductor of electricity. So we use it in, in, in semiconductors. They use it in aerospace. They use it in a lot of things, right? So either you're an asset that can generate income or you're a commodity that's used. Right. The beauty of gold is that you don't have to use it today. The reason gold is a store of value is I can hold on to my gold because someone can use it in a thousand years and it doesn't decay. It doesn't, the properties don't change over time. But Bitcoin doesn't have any of the characteristics of uh, an asset. It doesn't have any of the characteristics of a commodity. It has the characteristics of fiat currency, except it's not legal tender <laughs> anywhere. And it's not, you know, it, you know, governments don't accept it for taxes. And so it's, it's kind of exactly like what they're criticizing, only worse. Like it's, <laughs> it's like fiat currency in a digital form, only it's not even as good as fiat currency because it's not a legal tender, it's not a medium of exchange, it's not used in transactions, I mean, nothing. So it's a pure Ponzi, pyramid, chain letter, whatever it is, but all these things are illegal for a reason, because they can't work. They work, er they work initially. The people that get into a Ponzi or a pyramid early, right, or chain letter, they're the ones that make money. The people that got into Bitcoin early made a ton of money. Right. Right. As long as they sell, right? If they never sell, they ain't going to make anything. But the guys that bought Bitcoin for pennies or dollars, they've sold a lot of Bitcoin. They've made a lot of money. They bought a lot of Lambos, right? So they made a lot of money. But the people who are buying in now, these are the bag holders, right? These right. are the people who are going to lose a lot of money because Bitcoin doesn't create any wealth, right? Bitcoin helps transfer wealth from the people who buy it to the people who sell it. So the people who right. buy Bitcoin end up losing their wealth and the people who sell it to them get their wealth. Because Bitcoin, you know, when we have Bitcoin, right, we have, I don't know how many Bitcoins are out there now, 21 million is the total supply, which is 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, which is really what it is. It's a Bitcoin is just an arbitrary unit. It's 100 million Satoshis wrapped into one and then they call it a Bitcoin, but it's really Satoshis. So you got 2.1 quadrillion satoshis uh that are out there so there's plenty to go around everybody who wants satoshis there's plenty of them out there no problem buying them there's lots of supply of those things um but um uh eventually you know the fact that we have i don't know maybe there's like 18 million bitcoin now or 19 i forget i mean most of them have already you know been created uh, i don't like to say mind that's what they say but that's like a con to get you to think it's like it's like gold but the world is no better off today because we have those Bitcoins than we were before they existed. And if all those Bitcoins were wiped out tomorrow by some kind of electric pulse, like from the sun or something, the world wouldn't have lost anything. The Bitcoin don't produce anything. They don't add any value. They don't make anything more productive. So there's no real wealth associated with that. Yes, there's a, there's a market for them and there's a price 
for them, mm. but that's not actual wealth. The only way to get actual wealth is you got to sell, but then somebody has to buy. So it's just a mechanism for transferring wealth without creating any actual wealth on its own. So I, I think there are two, as I hear you, I, I think there are two almost pieces here and you've got sort of that, the technology aspect of it, which I'm sure you're familiar with the blockchain and, mm -hmm. and maybe the potential that we could use stable coins in the future for banking and sure. avoiding like the GameStop crisis that we saw uh, obviously on Thursday, you know, stable coins would speed up transactions and that. Is it possible that well, A, do you think we're going to go into maybe a stable coin style direction where we can speed up these transactions and facilitate transactions, especially internationally, which you do? Uh, is, is that something that's coming? And if that happens, then the B is, is that going to lead to more people being interested in investing into cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the largest one of those, shrinking supply. Hey, why why would that not make rational sense if we're yeah. also, you know, Japanese people go, I want to invest in US dollars, just as an example, of course. A lot of people invest in dollars. What what yeah. makes those things different? Well, I think that there is a lot of potential in blockchain and it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. I mean, it could end up being an instrument of giving government more control over our oh, lives dear. where we have less privacy, uh, less freedom. So I don't know, you know, government has a way of corrupting things um, and, uh, and, and, and making a good things a bad thing. Mm. Um, but the fact that the first use case for blockchain was cryptocurrency, uh, mm. you know, I think that's going to be unfortunate in that, you know, people are going to lose a lot of money, but all these cryptocurrencies can, can go to zero, but right. blockchain can still be there and utilize with legitimate assets, you know, because the cryptocurrencies are, are, are nothing. So yes, you can take a worthless digital token and use it in, on a blockchain, but you can also apply blockchain technology to things that have actual value, you know, so it's not just, uh, a Bitcoin. But the thing, the difference is when you use Bitcoin, what they like to say is like, well, there's no counterparty, right? It's all decentralized because you know right. it's easy to have no counterparty when you have nothing there. <laughs> but the minute you tie something real, then yes, there has to be a counterparty when there's actually some value attached to what you own because somebody is delivering that value or something is creating it. But look, the world has relied on counterparties you know, for centuries or thousands of years. I mean, that's the free market, you know, and right. counterparties compete uh, for reputation and you deal with reputable people and you diversify, you don't, you know, so I think that, you know, the, the world that exists today where information is so easily disseminated that it's easier for people to check out counterparties and, 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 and people's reputations are, are, are more easily uh, lost if they, you know, they, they do something bad. So I have no problem. I mean, where I do have a problem is people thinking, oh, I'm just going to uh, put my faith in these miners that I have never met and these group of people around the world that are mining and, and, and trust that. Or I'm going to trust uh, that somebody doesn't come up with a better version of Bitcoin that makes mine obsolete, you know, that there's not a better iteration like the way Facebook came around and, and, and took away MySpace, you know, or the way Google uh, came around and you know no one uses spyglass i forget some of those earlier search engines that all went away uh mm. remember ask jeeves who the hell searches on oh that my one gosh. yeah but i mean you know <laughs> just something comes up and you know uh, now we all use uh, uh uh google and nobody knows in 20 years or 50 years is anyone still going to be using google i mean someone's going to come up with something that might eat google's lunch we don't know 
right? So that with Bitcoin, and then you have to trust uh, that people are actually going to want it. I mean, that is the biggest element of trust when it comes to Bitcoin, because the only reason that Bitcoin has market value is because somebody wants to buy it. Well, why does somebody want to buy it? Because they think they'll be able to sell it in the future at a higher price. But once people right. lose confidence that Bitcoin is going to be worth more in the future than it is right now, then they want to sell it right now. And then everybody wants to sell it. No one wants to buy. And since there's no actual use for Bitcoin, there's no bottom. It just it's not like Bitcoin falls to a certain price. You know, like let's say with gold, let's say gold starts falling and I'm a jeweler. Oh, whoa, gold is cheap. Let me stock up. I need some extra gold. I'm going to buy my gold right now. I can make my jewelry or, you know, a a computer company. Oh, let me I'm going to buy a bunch of gold and hold on to it because, you know, I can get a good deal on it. I need it for my chips. There, there is nobody who needs Bitcoin for anything. So nobody will ever buy it if the price comes down, if they think it's going to keep falling. So why do you think, you know, arguably one of the greatest capitalists of our time now who follows your mantra of cutting prices to increase demand substantially, why do you think somebody like Elon Musk is changing his Twitter bio to Bitcoin? I have no idea. You know, you have to ask Elon... You know, I've never met the guy. I did meet his mother, May Musk. She was down yeah. here in Puerto Rico. Uh, and so I was able to meet her. And she's a very nice woman, um, lovely woman. Um, so I met her. Um, I've never met uh, him, though. Uh, I don't know. You know, I have a feeling that he's just playing around with Twitter. Because if you look at his tweets, I mean, mm. you know, he puts out these tweets. I mean, what do they really mean? I mean, when he like he tweets out like stuff about Bitcoin, he's never actually tweeted out, I'm buying Bitcoin. Bitcoin is great. I'm buying it. He's never said that. He sure. just puts Bitcoin, a hash, you know, hashtag Bitcoin. I think he's doing it just like when he did GameStonk. You know, why did he do that? I mean, he made the price of GameStop jump up. He didn't say I'm buying it. I mean, maybe he maybe he hates it. He just put one word out there, you know, with a meme, game and and oh my God, let's all buy it. I mean, he knows. I mean, he's got what 22, 25,000 followers. He's kind of like, really, you know, yeah. a, a, you know, a puppeteer. You know, he's like, oh, let me see if I can. It's like a hobby, just like when Donald Trump was like a hobby with Twitter. He's just not tweeting as often as Trump, but I think he's like making people dance. He gets a big laugh out of it. He put out one little tweet. He put hashtag Bitcoin in his bio, and Bitcoin almost went up twenty percent in value, market value. In an hour. I mean, this guy's probably laughing hysterically. I mean, what if Elon Musk bought a bunch of Bitcoin and then put out that tweet, goes up, and then he sold it? I mean, he's like laughing because he didn't actually tell anybody he was buying it. He sure, just like sure. put it there. And all he said was, I guess it was inevitable. What was inevitable? I mean, he's, yeah, but then <laughs> all of a sudden the Bitcoin, ah, he's going to buy Bitcoin for sure. uh, uh, Tesla. You know, he's going to buy Bitcoin for, um, you know, SpaceX. But, you know, here's a funny thing about it. I, I do think personally that um, he does have an interest. Elon Musk has an interest in keeping the Bitcoin bubble going. I think he would like to see it continue because, huh. you know, there's an old expression like when you live in a glass house, you don't want to throw stones. Right. right. When you live in a bubble, you don't want to throw pins. Right. Because one of the pins may end up pricking your own bubble. Tesla is also a huge bubble. 
There is uh -oh. no way that Tesla stock is ever going to be worth the current market price. I'm what? not saying that Tesla's not a great company or that he doesn't build great products, right? There's, it, 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 there's one thing about the, the company, the products, you know, are they good for the customers? Okay, is different than is it a good investment at the current price, right? You can have the greatest house. You're a real estate guy, right? You can be a beautiful house. This is a great house. It's a great lot, you know, beautiful property. It's really well built, but, you know, okay, it's, uh, you know, the price is $100 billion. Gosh, no, no, that's overpriced. I'm not going to, the house is not worth that much money. It's a great house, but it isn't worth that much money. So Tesla may be a great company and maybe it's not. I mean, who knows, right? But let's say it's a great company. Let's concede it's a great company. And it's yeah. going to have a big share of the uh, electric car market, right? It's not right. going to have the whole electric car market. I've got an electric car. Jaguar made it all electric. I didn't get a Tesla because they're not even here in Puerto Rico. I got a hybrid Porsche, not a Tesla. You know, so, I mean, there are other electric vehicles. Right. But Tesla has a market cap right now. I think that's greater than the next 10 largest auto companies combined. Right. Sure. I mean, it, but it earns. I mean, it's priced as if it's going to own like half the auto market, all of it, the entire market. Right. So this is all a bunch of nonsense. So I think that the last thing that Musk wants is for bubbles to start popping because huh. his bubble may be the next bubble. Right. So I think as long as this speculative fever, like who cares what something is worth, just buy it anyway. That is a little bit self-serving for his own bubble. I, well, I have a question uh, for you. So if you're looking at uh, different stocks and you see, uh, you know, let's say there's a, I, gosh, I don't know, there's the, let's go with uh, Square. So you got Square, the fintech. And you say, what do I think Square's revenues are going to be in 2024? And now you compare Square to Tesla. And, and when I made this comparison, it seemed like Tesla was substantially cheaper than Square, even where it is today. Is this just a perversion that everything is just really expensive today? Or, well, or yes. it, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, you have a lot of you know bad comparisons if you're comparing one very overvalued stock to another very mm. overvalued stock and saying which one is the better deal, like which one is <laughs> right. you know less ridiculously priced than mm. the other. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in fact, the whole market, the way they try to justify the valuation of the market is to compare it to the bond yields and say, well, you know, with interest rates this low, this is where, what stocks are worth. Yes, but interest rates are artificially low and they're not going to stay low forever, which means stocks are artificially expensive and they're not going to stay expensive forever. So mm -hmm. you can't just set up these you know, phony metrics and then base your, your analysis on, on these metrics. You know, you've got to have an objective standard of what is expensive and what is cheap. And then you would say, you know what? I don't want to buy Square or Tesla. They're both right. overpriced stocks. So let's look for something else, right? With real estate, here's two overvalued houses. It doesn't matter that one is slightly less overvalued than the other. I ain't buying either one because right. over here, I can find one that's actually a good deal. You yeah, know? yeah. So forget about, you know, chasing the popular ones that everybody else wants. I'm going to buy a value, you know. Is now going for that value, is that one of the reasons that you're investing abroad? Are you just seeing that the US stock market is it just 
because the you know maybe price to earnings ratios of the S and P five hundred are at all time highs. Are we just looking at the U S market and saying no, too expensive? Let's go abroad, or do you diversify into some tech and some commodities yeah. and some gold, or how do you play it? Well, I am diversifying. By the way, you know, I just noticed that I've been looking at you instead of this camera. So I think maybe my face has been like kind of on an angle. You've, you've been because it's like perfect. distracting. Totally like fine. I want to look at you, it. but there's the camera over there. So I'm going to try. It's to like look a at this one camera. degree difference. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> but to try to look at this camera, so I'm actually looking at the the people. You're but good. Look, you know, I like to be diversified. You know, I mean, mm. uh, I don't need to be overly diversified because maybe there's not that much good stuff to buy. But I want to mm. be diversified. In the good things that I find, because that minimizes the chances of you know, you know being wrong. Because uh, you know you can be wrong on a couple, but if you have a nice portfolio, you're not going to get them all wrong, right. and you're going to get some so spectacularly right that that will more than make up for the the ones that 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 you do get wrong. Uh, but you want to diversify out of the U.S. You want to diversify you know countries. You want to diversify. Uh, industry groups, uh, currencies, there's a lot of things, but I just see a big problem in the United States that so many people have been uh, ignoring. And, you know, what's happened is because we've been the issue of the reserve currency, every time we've had a problem, we haven't had to deal with it. We've been able to just sweep it under the rug by taking on more debt. Prince. And so we've, we've just basically <laughs> developed the mother of all problems. Other hmm. countries would have faced the discipline of the markets, you know, much sooner. And so the problems wouldn't be able to get that, that big. So what do you, I mean, I mean, you, you must be vomiting over the idea then that Biden has uh, the power that he has now suggesting that we are going to make the greatest investments into America over the next year with <laughs> $3 trillion infrastructure plans, a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, higher minimum wage, uh, his his argument of, of pumping up this economy so much to basically make our current debt irrelevant because we're going to grow so much. How are we supposed to interpret that? Well, that's just government spending. Government spending isn't investment. It doesn't grow the economy. You know, these are the same empty promises that the Soviet Union made. Right? Oh, no. I mean, they had all these five-year plans. The government's going to do all this and spend. It doesn't work. Government can't invest. Government can't create wealth. Where is that $3 trillion going to come from or $4 trillion? The government only has what it takes from the private sector. So what Joe Biden is promising is we're going to suck out $3 trillion from the private sector and we're going to mm -hmm. transfer it to government. And the government is going to be a so much better utilizer of capital. We're going to be so much more efficient than the actual private sector owners would have been that nice. the country is going to benefit from this collective use of these resources. But there is no example in all of history where that has ever worked. I mean, apart from it just defying common sense and all the laws of economics, you can't point to it ever working. But I can point to all these examples of abject failure. Right. And instead of focusing on all the good the government's going to do with the money it takes from the private sector, worry about all the good that's not going to be done by the private sector because the resources to do that good have been confiscated by the government. This is interesting. I mean, it, it's I, I just read uh, a Bloomberg report that uh, Biden, obviously, he signed an executive order that uh, we should produce EV vehicles, uh, or that's redundant, we should have EVs for the federal fleet. And this goes into the argument that you made, because the article goes on to say, 
here's the problem with Biden's executive order. Biden wants unionized labor to produce American electric vehicles that have <laughs> at least 50% American parts, but GM uses gets 70% of their parts from China and Tesla doesn't use unionized labor. So basically we can't do what Biden wants already. And that's just sort of one example of an executive order. Now, I haven't gone super deep on this, but part of what, what I'm hearing from you is the government might have these good intentions and this sounds great. Yes, we're gonna electrify all school buses. We're gonna electrify the entire <laughs> federal fleet. But then you look at the order and it's like unionized labor, 50% American, who does that? Nobody does that, oh crap. And, and so all of a sudden maybe now are we printing money and, and we're not actually functionally getting things done? Is, is that kind of where you're coming from? Well, I mean, first of all, yes. I mean, there are a lot of things that we don't produce and we're able to buy them from other countries because they'll accept our paper. Now, the point of the matter is one day they won't and we're not gonna have those things anymore. I mean, we're gonna have to try to produce them ourselves, but it's very difficult to do that. I mean, we don't, we don't have the capacity. So it's gonna take a long time to rebuild that capacity. It's gonna take a lot of savings and investment, which means you can't spend, you can't consume if you're right. freeing up resources uh, for capital investment. So that's what's gonna to have to happen. But all these government initiatives to kind of force people to use uh, certain types of products or certain types of labor, you have to ask yourself, well, why are they not using those products now, right? And the answer is, well, because they're too expensive, right? right? People are making an economic choice of what type of vehicle they want to drive. I mean, one of the reasons or the main reason I bought electric vehicles here in Puerto Rico was because I had a huge tax incentive by the Puerto Rican government to do that. And so it over, you know, by buying electric, like the Jaguar that we bought, they have a gas version of it. And the right. gas version was cheaper and more economical than the electric version, right? Mm -hmm. But because of this huge government tax subsidy, it turned the, the numbers around and it made the electric vehicle the better deal. So we bought it, but the government distorted that decision by, by that incentive. But you know, absent that incentive, if people are using gas vehicles and they're not buying electric vehicles, even though they're on the market and they could buy them, it's because the gas alternative is more economical. So if you're now going to force people to buy electric and even worse, force those cars to be made here, I mean, why are they being made someplace else? Because they're less expensive than making them here. So you're saying we're going to force you to buy a car, uh, an electric car that's more expensive than the gasoline car that you would have bought. And we're going to make that car made in America, which is going to make it even more expensive than the electric cars that are not made in America. Where are people going to get all this extra money? to buy these more expensive vehicles. Well, Jerome, to the extent they buy the more expensive vehicle, they can't buy something else. They have to take money away from other areas. And so now supposedly we've created jobs in the US uh, uh, electric vehicle market, but we've destroyed other American jobs because now I had to spend so much money on a car, I have to cut back on all sorts of other spending. And now other employment that was actually more productive is lost. And when the government says, well, we're just going to make, we're going to use all these electric buses made in America. Right. Well, those buses cost more than the ones they're using now. Who foots the bill for that? The taxpayer. They got to raise taxes in order to pay for these more expensive vehicles. So this is all a bunch of nonsense. Now, do you think that, so let's see here, Donald Trump, for example, he eliminated a lot of EPA regulations on, for example, gas cars. And Donald Trump's argument was, we want less regulation from the EPA, 
because uh, what's going to happen then is we'll be able to reduce the price of the car and people will be able to buy a more fuel efficient vehicle because they can actually upgrade from maybe the old car that they have now. And by reducing the EPA rule that says we need more higher fuel standards for, for certain vehicles that Trump did, we'll actually have people upgrading into more fuel efficient vehicles. That was a Trump argument. But now the current argument, of course, is we need these standards for climate change, even if that <laughs> means we have to spend more. How do you balance climate change, rising sea levels with now taxation and the EPA? <laughs> Look, we don't need an EPA. It's a waste of money. The regulations artificially drive up the, uh, the price of cars, just like the FDA. We don't need the FDA. We didn't have the FDA for a long, long time. Um, and the FDA just drives up the cost of drugs and, you know, makes, makes drugs more expensive. I mean, that's all it really does. Um, and so a free market, competitive, vibrant free market is the way to go. And then, you know, people who want fuel efficient cars will have plenty of options that there will be a demand for that. Automobile companies will make fuel efficient cars. There'll be a competition over who can make the most fuel efficient car because people want that, right? If there are some people that look, you know, I want a muscle car. I'm willing to pay extra to have a really fast car that accelerates. Okay, well, there'll be a market for that too, you know? Uh, and those people will have to use more gasoline and then they'll be paying higher prices. But, you know, the, what the government is doing is basically, you know, making it more expensive for everybody. And I bet there'd be more fuel efficient vehicles on the market if the government got out of the way and allowed the free market to produce them. Huh. I mean, uh, initially, I have to say, when you said no FDA, the first thing I thought is, oh, my God, no FDA. We're in a pandemic. But, <laughs> you know, I got to I got to give it to you. I I went through just sort of what what, uh, you know, recent memory here. And I'm thinking when when Pfizer first came out with the results of their trials, Nobody cared about the FDA. We heard 90 plus percent of efficacy. We then got a similar result from Moderna. And, and these were, uh, you know, privately done trials. Uh, and, and basically, we knew the FDA was going to rubber stamp these things. And so I tuned into some of the FDA hearings and, and some of the arguments were essentially, well, are we going to cause more good than harm by just saying, go for it. Here's your emergency yeah. use authorization. So then it almost begs the question, did we even need them? <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't. I mean, I think more people die waiting to get drugs that haven't been approved than die because a drug was approved and it was wow. too. And, and in fact, if you go back to the beginning of the FDA, and I forget mm. the, you know, the, 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 the dates, but when the FDA first came around, I think it might've been, you know, the late uh, 18, like 1890, 19, you know, you know, we didn't have, it's not in the constitution, right? We didn't have an FDA, you know, when the, when, when, you know, George Washington was around, but we eventually got one. Initially the FDA was just there and they basically, you had to prove that your drug was safe. That's all you had to prove that like, it didn't have any harmful side effects, right? You didn't have to right. prove that it actually worked. You didn't have to prove efficacy. Look, as long as it doesn't harm you, you can sell it and then let doctors and patients decide if they want to use it. Later, I think, you know, in the Roosevelt era or whatever, they or they came around or maybe, I forget, maybe it was the 60s, but they came around and they said, okay, you, it's not enough that you prove that the drug is safe. Now you have to prove that it, that it works. 
And that added so much cost to every drug because you have all these phases. There's three phases. The last one, phase three, is a random double-blind experiment. These phases cost hundreds of millions of dollars. They take years, and they are a complete waste of money. And a lot of times, drugs are, 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 are not approved just because they can't prove to some bureaucrat that they work, even though they might even though people's lives might've been saved or their symptoms may have been alleviated had they had access to these drugs, the government says you can't have it. So now you wanna get some of these drugs, you gotta go to another country. So let me ask you, is is the FDA now, is this gonna be, is this similar to like, let's go to the SEC and GameStop, for example, because this seems to be a very similar situation is that we've got this government body like the SEC, like the FDA, they set these rules and regulations, but now let's look at the SEC and GameStop. You look at the SEC, and here they come with this massive problem with with GameStop and the outages of of not being able to trade certain shares. Are are these government bodies why why are they here if they're not preventing or predicting some of these issues from happening? Or when well, we need them in the emergency moments, the, a lot of or some of the use the potentially only, goes look, away. We should there should be no SEC should be eliminated. Mm-hmm. We don't need a FINRA. We don't need security regulations. I think fraud should be illegal, right? It, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a federal offense. It could be a state offense. The only thing that would be problematic about this whole thing, I don't care about hedge funds losing money. I mean, they're big boys. I mean, you short stocks, you always run the risk of a short squeeze. Short right. squeezes have been around as long as there's been shorts, right? You know, so it's just coming from a, an angle they didn't expect. You know, and they got blindsided. Hey, those are lot. That's life. I mean, you make a lot of money sometimes, and then you lose a lot of money other times. That's par for the course. You know, in in on Wall Street and hedge funds. So don't shed any tears for the hedge funds that took a bath because they were short uh, a GameStop, even though they were probably good shorts. The stocks were probably going to go out of business. They probably still will. Uh, but you know, that's life. Not you know, you, you know, you you, you you always run risks when you you, you go for big returns. What I would be concerned about is, is there some fraudulent activity going on where people are misrepresenting what they're doing in chat rooms? Did they load up on these shares and then they make some false narrative about getting revenge and sticking it to Wall Street and they convince a lot of other guys to buy the stock and never sell and just hold on? You know, (laughs) this is going to really, you know, meanwhile, you're dumping behind the scenes. You're making a fortune. You know, and there's really some big guys pulling the strings and that would be fraud. And, you know, we don't need the SEC. We just need, you know, the police to go after security fraud locally or stuff like that or pump and dump. But here's the bigger issue. And this is something that I am intimately familiar with being in the financial service industry. There is a lot of young investors who are you know, on Robinhood and buying stocks through discount brokers. And they really don't know what they're doing. They have no real experience and they're not getting any professional guidance. And the reason for that is because they can't afford it. See, before the government got involved and I started in the broker dealer business, we didn't really have account minimums. Anybody can open up an account um, and we would work with you. And, uh, and the hope was, okay, we'll get started. We're not going to make a lot of money. A guy's got five or 10 grand. We're not going to make a lot of money off this account, but maybe, you know, as he gets older and he makes more money and, you know, we'll have a client, right? So we'll start out with him when he's young. But the government through the SEC and through FINRA 
has made it so expensive to have a brokerage account that if you don't have 50, 100,000, 250,000, the brokerage firms are losing a bunch of money on these accounts because they can't charge enough to offset the cost of compliance for the account. So they basically raise these minimums. So now the government puts in all these rules and regulations supposedly to protect the little guy. Now it's so expensive to work with a little guy that no legitimate professional will. So now the little guy is just there, a victim of all kinds of fraud and schemes on the internet. He's got no professional guidance. He's doing it all himself on a discount app, right? Because those are the only people that can afford to take his account. So the government is the reason that so many people are going to get ripped off because they've made it impossible for professionals to work with them by driving up the cost so much with the regulatory environment that we have. So uh, linking this together, are, are you saying the government has made it impossible for people to build their wealth, so they have to resort to platforms uh, like you. Wall Street? I Bets. can't hear you. Uh oh, uh oh, I, I, I lost your, I lost my sound. Uh oh, hello. I can hear you. Can you hear me, Paul? I got. <laughs> hey, Paul. We'll pull up the chat. Can you Hold hear on. me? I can hear you. Yeah, I can't hear anything you're saying. Wait, did Bond? Oh, wait a minute. We're my dog, Paul. I got a dog there that must. I think Bonnie disconnected my. I can't hear anything. And then you can. We're, we're at the take good Bonnie part. Out of here. So oh, now stand I can by hear you. for the technical difficulty. You probably just stepped on a cord. Just, well, maybe Bonnie moved. Try to just take Bonnie out of this, here. I got a dog lying part. at my feet. <laughs> this is the GameStop part. <laughs> no, no, no. Go on, go on. Take her. She was barking before because the kids came home. <laughs> oh, now I'm hearing myself. Uh oh. Oh, hold on. And, oh, my, okay. All right, rewind. What were you saying? Okay, so I'm making this, this connection here because this is big. It seems like what you're saying is the government has made it so impossible for people to make money through all this intense regulation that they have no choice but to resort to something like Wall Street bets, which you kind of implied that it was a scheme. Or Are you suggesting that people discussing and on like wall street bets and, and these forums and sharing ideas is that bad should they not be or, or should no, they no 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 i mean i'm all for an open forum mm. but fraud should be illegal right uh, it should be illegal on the internet you know i mean i'm i'm, I'm a capitalist right i believe in the free uh -huh. market but i'm not an anarchist right so i do think there should be laws that protect uh private property that protect your life i mean that's what government is for that's why we have government mm. And so fraud is like theft, right? And so people should be able to uh, tr trade ideas, but that doesn't mean that you should be able to defraud somebody with your fake ideas. So oh, wait, I think you, that, I, you know, I don't know yeah. how much of that chat stuff is legitimate or how much is Fraud. Look, I, I have a pretty big Twitter following. I have, you know, sure. 300 or what do I have? 340 some odd thousand Twitter followers. I have, you know, on my YouTube channel, I have, I think, 425,000 subscribers. Like what if I loaded up on a thin stock, right? Like right. a, like a, a illiquid stock. And I bought a bunch of shares and then I just went out on all my social media and I said, Oh my God, I just found the greatest stock in the world. This thing's going to go to the moon, man. Let's just buy the hell out of it. Just get out there and buy this thing and don't worry about limits and just buy it at the market, right? And I'm telling everybody to buy it, right? And I already own it, right? And now the stock is going way up because I just got all these people to buy it. 
And now I just start selling my shares, right? Nobody knows. And I'm just cashing in, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's free speech, right? But, I mean, should, is that, should that be legal? No, it's fraud. That's a pot's pumping up. It's security fraud, right? I am deceiving people. I am lying to them to get them to do something that they wouldn't do if I told them the truth. If I said, look, I bought a bunch of shares of this piece of shit stock, and the reason I'm telling you to buy it is so I can make a lot of money selling it to you. If I was honest about my intentions, nobody would buy it. I have to lie to get people to buy it. And that's the fraud. Because if I told them the truth, they wouldn't do it. So, you know, are there people in the internet that are lying? I'm sure there are. Are there people that are honest? I'm sure there are too, right? So yes, government should, to the extent that they can, punish people who are committing fraud online. But I don't want the federal, although maybe you could say, because it's interstate commerce, because, you know, you're talking about somebody in one state defrauding somebody in another state. So there could be a, a role for the federal government uh, to, to, to come after that. But I don't think we really need the SEC, because I think that whole agency should be abolished, because fraud is fraud. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a used car salesman rolling back the odometer and lying about a car to get somebody to buy it or somebody lying about a stock, right? It's basic, the same concept. So in, in your opinion, where's the where did the fraud potentially, We obviously we don't know, but potentially in your opinion, where did the fraud start? Do you believe that it started on the forums like Wall Street Bets, or do you think it started with the over-leveraged short sellers or both? Well, look, first of all, the over-leveraged short sellers, if, you know, I don't know that that's a fraud. I mean, I don't know that all these different hedge funds that were short the stock really know, like, you know, how much is short. Maybe they realize that, you know, 140% of the outstanding shares had actually been shorted. Right. And, um, you know, they, they probably never envisioned a situation where they'd be forced to cover and they'd have to buy, you know, buy all that stock. Uh, so I think people that were short got a little bit too greedy had they not shorted quite as much, then it, they wouldn't have been as vulnerable uh, to this squeeze. Uh, but, you know, some of these guys really went all in, you know, and they are betting big, you know, and you're getting paid two and 20. You get a powerful incentive to take the risk because you get 20 percent of the ups or sometimes they yeah. get more. So, you know, these guys, sometimes they're gambling with other people's money and they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're a little riskier. So they got burned. But obviously somebody, and I don't know who, you know, orchestrated this or figured out, hey, these guys are really, really short this this stock. And it, again, it, it wasn't just Game GameStop. I mean, there's a, maybe a dozen, maybe more of these companies that got heavily shorted. A lot of them are, you know, retailers that, you know, have been decimated by COVID. I mean, they're totally screwed, right? So they right. attracted a lot of shorts because they're obviously in so much trouble. And somebody probably said, you know, these are very crowded trades. What if we can somehow get a bunch of people to buy these stocks, even though, like, because nobody would buy them as an investment, because as an investment, they suck. That's why there are so many shorts. But what if we can get a bunch of people to buy them, even though they're a lousy investment, just to jack up the price, just because we know we've got these guys stuck. And if we could just make the price go up high enough, they're going to be forced to buy it at an even higher price. And then we can cash out as we force these shorts to uh, to cover. So somebody figured that out and a brilliant plan. You know, let's in, let's you know get all this army of Robin Hood traders and other people online in these chat rooms 
and let's get all these people to just buy, 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 buy. I don't know exactly who was behind it, if there was a sophisticated guy or my guess is those guys are probably long gone. I mean, they probably sold out already and made their money. But, you know, then other people just continue to buy this thing uh, and, and, and push it higher. But so I don't think it's just the little guys on their own. I don't know that they had enough, you know, buying power to drive the price as high as it as it got. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of these guys are going to be stuck as bag holders. It's not just going to be the hedge funds who were short that are going to lose money. The lot, a lot of the people that squeeze them out of their short are going to be stuck holding that overpriced stock. That is the problem. But, you know, so it's not because, we, you know, we need more government, uh, you know, because, I mean, look, if there was less government, people wouldn't have fallen for that. I mean, you know, somebody would have called up their broker and said, hey, you know, should I buy this stock? And they might have said, oh, come on. That's, you know, why do that? You know, but they didn't have that broker between them and, you know, the, the button they pushed to buy it. Right. Because right. the government made it too expensive for that broker to work with them. Uh, interesting. So the, the current narrative is is that a, a particular individual named, uh, well, he goes by the, the moniker Deep Effing Value, uh, you know, realized that there was this massive short position against GameStop and began making investments in the GameStop uh, as, as early as 2019, I believe, potentially even a little bit early. Uh, and, and he initially at least bought this under the fundamental belief that, hey, we've got a new console cycle coming up. We've got, uh, you know, this is way cheaper than it should be on a fundamental value. And so he bought these call options and sort of posted his his uh, gains on that. Uh, this particular individual still to this day posts how he's turned essentially $50,000 into like $42 million now. I mean, this is really the, the going from like the bottom to top, right? Absolutely incredible. Uh, so, you know, with with that, is is your concern that there, this community is is it being? Do you think it's being manipulated by you know some larger, maybe more sophisticated institution, or do you think that this is just a you know a, 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 like it's, it started as maybe a free and fair discussion of of ideas and value, and did it turn into something it was never supposed to be? But I don't know. I mean, there's certainly nothing yeah. wrong with somebody sharing their research. I mean, there's nothing wrong with somebody buying a stock and then letting other people know why they did it, just so right. long as they're not quietly selling it while they're telling people to keep buying and they're selling their own. As long as they're being honest, you know, hey, I bought it. And if they're yeah. upfront with when they're selling it, like, okay, mm -hmm. you know what? The stock price is high enough. Don't buy it anymore. I'm going to sell. But a lot of mm -hmm. times you don't want to tell people you're selling because then you won't get as good a price. You, in fact, you want people to keep buying while you're selling. <clears throat> so, so there's where you have to be, be careful. But is it possible that somebody saw a big uh, non-consensus trade against, uh, against the crowd? Here's a stock that's obviously in trouble and everybody is short and everybody just assumes that nothing can go right. I'm going to make a bet that they're wrong, that something may. Yeah, I mean, that could have happened. I mean, yeah. you know, the same thing happens when stocks are very expensive, right? You get a stock that everybody loves, right? This is the favorite stock, nothing, you know, and then you want to bet against that consensus. You want to, you either you short it or you, you know, buy puts or, you know, because you think the crowd is wrong. They've built in too many positive things and maybe there's room for a negative surprise. So maybe somebody said with GameStop, all the, all the bad things are already factored in. Maybe something good will surprise everybody. And they'll have to cover the shorts. But I don't think anybody expected this. So 
whoever that guy was, I mean, I don't think in his wildest dreams after he put on this trade, he ever thought that GameStop could be a $500 a share. Sure. I mean, it would have been like, I mean, that would, you know, so, I mean, so just like, I don't think that a lot of people who bought Bitcoin at a dollar were thinking it was going to be 40,000. I mean, there might've been some people, but. Do so do you, uh, do you believe that it's a mistake for people to be in GameStop now? Do you think that if people were in Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, in GameStop now, do you think people should sell if they're in GameStop? Oh yeah. I mean, the easy money has been made on the long side of GameStop. So it's now a game of musical chairs, right? If you are stuck with those shares when the music stops, you lose. But, you know, as a trading vehicle, right, there's a lot of volatility there. Now, the worst thing is don't buy the calls. Don't buy the put. They're so expensive. Probably a better trade is to sell the calls. I wouldn't want to sell the puts, but selling the calls, you know, there's a lot. Of, again, I'm not giving investment advice to people, but, you know, you got to do your own homework. I'm not allowed to do that per the SEC and FINRA. You know, I'm not allowed to actually <laughs> give advice uh, on on uh, on the air. So I, I don't. Um, but, uh, yeah, the option, the volatility has gone through the roof. So the option premiums are just crazy. So it's horrible to buy them. It's a field day if you're going to write them. But look, I mean, these stocks are up 50% one day, up 100% down. I mean, it's just crazy uh, movement. So guys who are traders, you know, obviously they're trading it. They don't give a damn about what the stock is worth. They're in and out intraday. But if you're going to buy it and hold it, I mean, you're you're toast, right? Wow. I mean, you're, okay. you know, you, there's no way, even if the company survives, even if they don't go bankrupt, even if they take advantage of this share price, and they can sell new stock, right? Because GameStop can issue stock. They can do an at-the-market oh, yeah. ATM. It's at-the-market. They can go. They don't need an underwriter uh, uh, you know, to do a secondary. They just start yeah. selling shares into the market and, and collect cash, right? Because they can print the shares out of thin air. They're their shares. They can issue as many as they want and just sell them to the men. So even if they do that and they, and they end up with a big hoard of cash, the share price is not going to settle you know, in, in hundreds of dollars a share. It'd be lucky if it if it if it's above ten in the end, you know. Wow. But, so you so, think but, so it's very but, dangerous, I think. I, but I gotta ask you, the the slogan right now, and somebody I'm I'm reading this comment here. Uh, the slogan right now is "Hodel, we can be retarded longer than you can be solvent." <laughs> What's your take on that? Yeah, well, look, that's an old Wall Street adage that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And what I guess that is about is like, hey. Yes, it is. You know, that's a politically correct word. You know, I got in a lot of trouble for using that word on uh, on uh, television, on uh, The Daily Show, oh, no. <laughs> even though I tried not to use it. They tried to highlight it. Um, but um, what what they're trying to say is, look, we know this is an irrational uh, trade. We, we know we're going to lose money, but we don't care. We're willing to act irrationally and just overpay for a stock that we know is going to go down. And we're going to do that longer than you can remain solvent. Now, the question is, how much money are they willing to lose? How much money will they throw away for the cause? See, I don't know how long they can really afford to do that. That's the thing. Or how many more people they can recruit into the army of kamikaze traders, right? Where you're like, hey, I'm not trading to make money. I know I'm going to lose money. I'm just sacrificing myself for the good of the cause, right? The cause of sticking it to Wall Street. 
right? Sticking it to the hedge funds. I don't know. I don't know how many people are just so mad at hedge funds that they're willing to throw their money away in order to exact this revenge. So you think it's almost become a social movement to where you gotta be part of it, but you, you think that people going into these trades almost know that at some point they're gonna lose money unless unless they sell out soon. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, well, I, I, but I just think a lot of people don't realize that. I think you have a lot of novice traders out there that really don't think they're throwing their money away. They actually think they're gonna make money. See, this is gonna be the problem, again, just like Bitcoin. A lot of people are gonna lose a lot of money in these stocks. A lot of people are gonna lose a lot of money in cryptocurrencies. And then the government is gonna swoop in and say, aha, you see, capitalism is bad. All these poor people were taken advantage of. What we need is more government. As if we don't have enough government now. We have so much government as it is, yet these people are still being taken advantage of. So big government isn't protecting anybody. In fact, as I said, big government is why so many people are so vulnerable. And what's your take then on uh, Robin Hood? You know, they're they're basically saying, hey, you know, we needed to stop people from being able to buy shares of GameStop and AMC due to volatility. You know, some other brokerages say it wasn't our fault. It was the clearing firms that wanted more collateral in this. What's your take on that? And what, what's the government's position there? Or, or to what should their position be? Well, the government shouldn't have a position because mm -hmm. they're a private company and they can decide what stocks um, their customers are gonna trade and their customers can decide if they wanna continue to do business with Robinhood or if they wanna seek out a, a different uh, brokerage firm. But the question is, why are they doing that, right? Like on Friday, they ended up restricting how much you could buy. You could buy one share, it was like your maximum right. what is that? you could buy. Yeah. Well, it depends yeah. on the price, but in the terms of GameStop, you know, it varies so greatly, but it could be $200, $300, right? Depending on what the price is. But the question is, why did they do that? Now, if you're familiar with the Robinhood business model, they don't charge for a trade. They give the trades away for free, right? So how are they making money? If they're, if they're charging zero commission to their customers, where are they making money? And when you realize that their customers aren't paying any money, you realize that those are not really their customers. They're, mm -hmm. they're part of the product, right? So Robinhood's product is all these little guys trading stocks. Who's the customer? The customer are the hedge funds that are paying for that order flow. They want to the, take the other side of those trades, right? right. So they're the customers. That's where they make their money. They're, they're the ones that are actually paying Robinhood, right? The individuals with accounts, they're not paying anything, right? So now you got to think about maybe what was happening is that Robinhood was getting all these orders and their customers didn't want them. They didn't want to take the other side. They didn't want these trades. So now how do they get them executed? Well, now Robinhood would actually have to pay somebody to execute the trades that they were getting paid for. So they could have been losing a fortune on all these trades. So they had to shut down their customers because they were losing too much money. That's the most likely reason. There's another possible reason, and this would be a big problem for their reputation. Let's say some of their customers, their real customers, their hedge funds, they're getting killed, right? They're short this stock. And maybe what they had to say to Robinhood is, you know what? 
you've got to stop accepting these buy orders because it's crushing us. We're losing a bunch of money. We're your customers. If we go out of business, you lose all that revenue. So you better shut this down so that we can stay in business. Otherwise, we all lose. So that now, if that's the case, then that really screws up their brand. You know. Oh, I think they'd um, go bankrupt if that's the case. If there was yeah, collusion I mean, like that, and, they'd be bankrupt. You know, they were planning an IPO, and in fact, apparently, there's a lot. You know, they've got a lot of free publicity out of this, right? There's an old saying like, "All, all, all publicity is good," right? Even if it's no press bad. is bad so, press, right? You know, so we'll see what happens huh. here. But so you know, I don't want the end game to be bigger government, more government, which unfortunately is probably what's going to happen. I mean, look, AOC has already interjected herself into this, you know, and now Ted Cruz, you know, and they are joining forces. So like, oh my God, <laughs> well, well, what's going on here? So it's pretty much, if you've got AOC and Ted Cruz, you know, it's going to get, there's going to be regulation. I mean, you've got the opposite sides, right? Of, the, of both parties the, 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 that are like looking into it. So. So a question here from the chat. Uh, some folks are asking, uh, Peter, is this maybe a movement? Maybe this isn't a scheme. Maybe this is everybody piles in on GameStop. We're diamond hand holding the stock. We're not going to sell this stock. <laughs> this is the 99% versus the 1%, and it's oh. actually working. And look, it's real stimulus. People's accounts are actually going up, and, and maybe it's they're, not they're, a scheme. It's not stimulus. The accounts are only up because they're not selling. What good is a stock that you never sell? If it doesn't pay you any dividends and you mm. never sell it, it, it's not worth anything, just like, just like the cryptocurrencies. Look, if the 99% want to make themselves poor to make a statement, you know, they can buy GameStop. But look, what's a better statement? What they started doing on Thursday in uh, uh, Wall Street uh, bets and in the chat rooms, they started focusing on silver, physical silver, silver mining stocks. You want to make a statement and make money? That's what you buy. Because there you have an undervalued commodity and you have stocks that are undervalued. Buy those. Now, they're not going to be able to manipulate the price. Even though there's some shorts out there, it's a much mm. bigger market. So they're not going to have the immediate impact of a, a big rise. But they're going to get a big rise eventually. I mean, there's going to be the mother of all short squeezes in silver and gold. Uh, these gold stocks and silver stocks, I think, are really going to go up dramatically. So that's a better statement that, hey, I'm pissed off at fiat money and the government and the banks. So I want out, right? And right. I'm going to buy physical silver. I'm going to buy silver stocks. And that's my protest. At least that protest can enrich them. Now, why throw your money away and protest? Why not protest in a way that actually uh, will make you money? You know? so You'll be I in a better look, position to keep protesting if you don't go broke. I just looked. The market cap of GameStop at $325 a share is $22.6 billion. The market cap of silver is $1.4 trillion. So is your suggestion that people won't be able to manipulate the price of silver, but they should still invest in silver because you think it's going to the moon? Yeah, well, I think that silver in a way has been manipulated on a bigger scale, you know, through mm -hmm. the paper markets, through the, you know, the futures markets, where you have people selling huge quantities of silver that they don't own and that they have no intention of ever delivering. 
Uh, and, and so at some point, I think a lot of the shorts in the silver market are going to be subjected to the same forces that the shorts in GameStop were just subjected to. But it's going to take something much bigger than a bunch of guys on Reddit. You know, this, this is a bigger deal, uh, but it's going to happen. And then you're going to see a meteoric, I think, rise in the price of silver. But in the meantime, if the guys that are now buying GameStop, if they bought some physical silver instead, Right. Or they bought some silver stocks. And, you know, one of them, they recommended one stock in particular, First Majestic, and everybody piled into it. And they gapped it open 40%, you know, because they got all these market orders. Again, that's another problem where the people are not sophisticated enough to know, do not buy a stock at the market, especially if everybody else is trying to buy it at the same time. Use a limit. Wait for a pullback. You know, don't just pay any price. You know, just be patient and buy it cheaper. So they're not getting help. Right. They're just being, you know, they're, you know, people are taking advantage of people like, oh, just shoving these market orders in on the open, you know, or even paying these crazy prices in the aftermarket where there's even less liquidity. And they're really getting uh, taken to the cleaners uh, by these professionals. But have some discipline. But buy these mining stocks. I mean, and don't just buy First Majestic. You know, there's a lot of better ones that people could buy. Uh, or they could just buy a fund. You know, I have the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. Take a look at, you know, be, be diversified. You know, you can't buy mutual funds on Robinhood platforms, though, unfortunately. So, yeah, you know, you, my funds are not available there. They don't do mutual funds. They do have ETFs. Uh, so you can buy indexes of uh, a broader basket of silver stocks, gold stocks, things like that. Um, but that would be a lot better than just overpaying for a company that may go bankrupt one day. And even if it survives, it's going to survive at a much lower valuation than the one that you know, it, it has today because of all this mania. So another question here, Evan in the chat says, uh, I'm sorry, it's actually uh, Ollie in the chat says, so what's the difference between financial analysts or, or you know, uh, hedge fund managers? For example, look at um, Bill Ackman, you know, shorting the market in March famously, while at the same time going on CNBC saying, shut everything down, this pandemic, shut everything down, right? Driving prices around. What's the difference between that and the people getting empowered now over six, almost seven million users on Wall Street Bet, the people getting empowered and, and finally having a similar voice to somebody like. Yeah, you know, there's not much difference. You know, I, yeah. I, you know, raised an eyebrow at the time, you know, when he is like, this is terrible. This is awful. Um, and he's short. And then he right. he, he he covers you know, as everything is, everybody is panicking, he covers that short and now gets long, you know, and of course he convinced, helped convince the government to come in, the Fed to come in and, and bail everybody out. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't like those statements either uh, when, when they were made. So there are a lot of people that I think that are, you know, using the media, whether it's a CNBC or the internet uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, serve themselves, you know, and a lot of people accuse me and say, Peter, you, you go on and you tell people to buy gold, which I do, but right. I'm not selling my gold at the same time. I mean, I'm not pumping and dumping gold. And what I say has no influence on the price. But when you have people who are in a situation where they can influence the price because the market is so thin and so subjective, you know, uh, subjected to uh, intervention, there's the problem. And people, when they have more influence, uh, you know, and, and they can actually move markets, there mm -hmm. is a problem when they're, 
you know, not necessarily being honest, they're, they're utilizing the media or the internet to move those markets in a way that is advantageous to what, what they're trying to accomplish. So would, would you consider, uh, you know, even though you believe that GameStop is substantially overvalued, would you consider investing in a stock as part of a, a movement, for example? Because what if it's, what if there is no dump, right? What if everybody holds? What, what do you well, say? That, that, well, that's impossible hmm. because everybody is not going to hold. Somebody is going to sell. It, and if it's not somebody, it's going to be the company, right? GameStop itself is going to start issuing new shares. It's going to start creating new shares and selling them into the market and take that cash. So somebody is going to sell. The price is going to go down. That is a certainty. The only question is, how long does it take, right? But no, nobody should be buying. Everybody who owns that stock should sell, right? I mean, be the, you, you got to get out before somebody else gets out. Because if you're, if you're left with those shares, when the music stops, you're wiped out. I mean, maybe it won't go bankrupt. You know, maybe they'll, you know, have some cash. Maybe they'll reinvent themselves in a smaller scale. I don't know, you know. Uh, but if you own the stock now, you should get out. Does that mean it can't go up? No, it can go up back up to 500. Should, maybe you can go to 1,000. I don't know. <laughs> the same yeah. is true with cryptocurrencies, right? Bitcoin mm -hmm. is worthless, right? It's, but people are paying $30,000, $32,000 for a Bitcoin. Does that mean that... Bitcoin can't go to 100,000? No, of course it could. If it 32,000, 100,000, they both make as much sense as the other because when something has no value, yet somebody is willing to pay $30,000 for something that has no value, who's to say that somebody else won't pay 100,000? But mm -hmm. all I'm telling people is one day no one will pay 30,000, no one will pay 10,000 or 3,000 or 300. Eventually no one's going to want it because something that's worthless has no real value. So eventually the market price is going to equal that intrinsic value, which, which is Bitcoin. I mean, zero in the case of these crypt Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrencies. I mean, I have to say, I think it's, it's an interesting argument that you brought up that even if everybody holds the line, GameStop could essentially be the one that starts just issuing a bunch of new shares, which yeah, could and somebody has, yeah. And so somebody's going to have to buy those shares from GameStop. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, GameStop is going to crash down. the market. So you can't just hold the line. You have to keep buying. They need to recruit more people willing to mm -hmm. buy that stock that GameStop is going to try to sell. Otherwise, the market's going to crash just from the company trying to issue new stock. So yesterday I made this, uh, this sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it a conclusion, but observation that uh, maybe... As long as the Wall Street Bets community keeps growing on Reddit at the pace that it's growing, which which yesterday was almost a thousand users uh, per per minute, almost, uh, would you say that as long as more new money keeps coming in, it can keep going up? But at some point, you'll run out of people. Is is that kind of the argument? Yes, right. All okay. chain letters eventually run out of chain. I mean, whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's 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 inevitable that it's going to happen. But look. Is it possible that more people are going to jump on this bandwagon? I mean, I saw, you know, on the Internet, somebody was flying over Miami in a plane with a banner, you know, a GameStop. Uh, you know, if, if more and more people just make it their mission in life, if everybody in America bought, you know, GameStop, and in fact, if everybody on planet Earth, right, I mean, you can keep saying, what if, what if, what if, right, if more right. and more people... Ignore the fact that the company is not worth anything close to its current price. 
but they're willing to buy it anyway, either because they just want to get in on the mania because they think that, well, you know what? If everybody buys it, then the price is going to go up. If nobody gives a damn what it's worth and everyone's just going to buy it anyway, well, then let me buy it now because it's going to go up, right? You get that, that, you know, that bubble mentality that value means nothing. It's just going to keep going up. And I just assume that there's always going to be a greater fool, right? And it is possible that that can happen. But mm. it always ends the same way. It doesn't matter how high it goes, it's going to crash. It doesn't matter how high Bitcoin goes, it's going to crash. Now, does that mean, okay, well, it could go a lot higher before it crashes? Yes, that's true. And you could get in, you could buy some, ride it up, and get out before the crash. You can. And some people will. But by definition, most people will not, right? Because you can't. You Everybody can't get out because then the price collapses. You need buyers to have a seller. So the dynamic of all this stuff is that money gets transferred. Remember, I said earlier in the podcast, Bitcoin doesn't create any wealth, doesn't produce anything, right? So how right. are people making money from Bitcoin? They're making money by selling it to other people. So the money that some people make equals the money that other people lose. It's a zero-sum game. Money goes from one person to another person. In fact, there is money that's siphoned off in transaction costs you know, to the miners and everybody. So it's actually a negative-sum game, meaning that the money that people earn will actually be less than the money that people lose because of all the cost involved and all the mining equipment that had to be bought, all the computers and all the energy that had to be used, right? So all right. those costs had to get sucked out of the whole thing, right? Huh. So it's a giant waste of money, right? Because look how expensive it is to create a Bitcoin. Yet the right. Bitcoin has no real value, but it, you use a lot of valuable resources to produce it, but then you end up with nothing. So you've squandered all those resources, which is a real shame that society is squandering all these resources that might have been used productively. And instead, they were used to create a worthless uh, digital token. But in the end, you know, just the, the, you know, the people make money that other people lost. So the same thing is going to happen with GameStop. You know, there's going to be some people that end up with a lot of profits, but there's going to be a much greater number that end up with a bunch of losses. And that's what made it possible. Got it. So it, it's interesting when you talked about this, this buyer seller dynamic, how fast do you think if you're right and, and this GameStop comes down, how fast do you think it's going to happen? Is it just going to be one day you wake up and it was 400 and now it's 50 or what are you thinking? Well, you know, there's an old saying too about markets. They take the stairs up and the escalator down. Oh, okay. or the yellow. And so the markets tend to go down even faster than they go up. So this thing went up awfully fast. <laughs> so it could come down uh, even faster. So I, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't tell you exactly how it's going to collapse. I just know that it will. Uh, and if I knew when, right, then I could make a lot of money by buying puts or, or, or but I don't know when. And I don't know how big the bubble is going to get. I'm not that smart. I'm smart enough to know a bubble when I see one. And I'm also smart enough to know I don't know when one is, you know, going to pop, how big it is. I mean, I've, you know, I've been wrong before, right? Looking at bubbles and thinking, oh, my God, they can't possibly get any bigger. And then, you know, look what happens. So, sure. sure. But in the final analysis, 
Um, they all meet the same fate. You know, that's the the, the nature of the bubble. So to to wrap these these thoughts together, then, because we've got, you know, your recommendation is that we see less government, we see less regulation and we have to protect ourselves from inflation and and also protect ourselves from from bubbles. How would you uh, recommend that somebody let's say let's let's make up a character here, take an average 30 year old uh, dude or female right now, they've got a job. They're making, uh, I, don't, I don't know, 60, 70K, 80K a year, uh, maybe 50K a year. How do they invest their first $10,000? How do they diversify? Yeah. What what should they do? Do they buy a house? What do they do? Yeah, well, I would. You know, I don't think houses are going to be good investments. Um, I think they're overpriced, and I think there's much better places for your money. I think it's better to rent and take the savings or the down payment money and do something else with it. But look, I mean, look, I think if you have... You know, 10,000 bucks or something like that. I think diversifying outside the U.S. into physical silver, you know, you can look at my mutual funds. You can go to any discount brokerage firm. You go to the website, uh, europacfunds.com. Uh, you can buy my mutual funds if they're suitable for you. You know, check them out, you know, read the prospectus, understand the risks. Um, but all my funds will get you out of the U.S. market, out of the U.S. dollar. I have an emerging market fund, a gold fund that invests in mining companies, a value fund, a dividend payer fund, a bond fund. All these are designed to protect you from domestic inflation and a weak dollar. If you have a larger amount of money, uh, you can work directly with me. You can work with my representatives, uh, the brokers that work for me, the financial advisors to help personally create a portfolio for you uh, that either I can manage or that you can manage yourself with guidance of, of, of our brokers. But we have separately managed accounts. I even have accounts where I manage portfolios that consist of my mutual funds. So people you know, can contact advisors through the Euro-Pacific uh, Funds website. They can go to Europac, europac.com for the broker dealer, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.com and contact uh, my representatives and you know they can go through all the strategies and all the risks to make sure that you know everything is suitable and that you understand what you're doing uh, before you do it uh, and for physical gold and silver you know my company shift gold i mean we have i think it's the best place to buy physical gold and silver uh, you're not going to have a salesman try to you know uh, bait and switch you and get you to buy these phony uh, collectible semi-numismatic coins uh, with these huge markups uh, you know, you're going to get a fair deal on bullion coins and bars, and that's what you want. You want to buy as much gold and silver as you can, as close to the spot as you can. Uh, you don't want to so you know, become a you. coin collector. Yeah, and, and I mean, I absolutely agree. Diversification is, is wonderful, and thank you for, for that. Um, one of the things you mentioned was inflation. You know, if inflation is coming, earlier we touched on the idea that you can almost hedge your inflation by by owning, uh, and, and you'll know, we'll wrap up on this. Uh, by owning real estate, why recommend renting then? Could somebody build wealth, for example, by leveraging a three percent down uh, invest or uh, purchase where they live yeah, I mean, buy your fund or something? Yeah, I mean, if you can get a piece of property with that little down, or better yet, nothing down, if you can finagle that. Yeah. Obviously, if we have hyperinflation, then that wipes out your debt and then you own, you end up owning the property for free. So for some people that may be a viability, you know, viable way to go. But, you know, 
you still have the mortgage payment, you still have the taxes, you still have the maintenance, you still have the insurance, and all those costs need to be paid. And all those costs are going to go up, you know, with inflation. So your your maintenance is going to go up, your taxes are going to go up, your insurance is going to go up. So it, the ownership is going to get more expensive, even if maybe the real value of the debt is going down. Um, but but if you have to put down a significant down payment, chances are that you could actually be better off investing that down payment in something that could really go up in value, especially if we have hyperinflation, that down payment may end up being worth many, many times the value of that home. And so then you might be able to sell part of your investment and buy the home for free without a mortgage and still have a portfolio in addition uh, to your real estate. I mean, if I'm right and we have really bad inflation, the real value of U.S. real estate is going to go down. I mean, that's even if, you know, you know, nominally it goes up. I mean, America is going to be a much poorer country. And so real wow. estate in real terms is going to have a much, much lower price. I mean, maybe some real estate, you know, you own beachfront property in Maui yeah. where a lot of Japanese tourists want to be. I mean, you know, it's a little bit different, you know, but if you're in the middle of America where the only guy that might buy your property is an unemployed American who's broke and spending all his money on food, <laughs> how much can you really get for that property and how much can you rent it out for, you know, to, to a broke tenant? There was a big thing you said, and I don't mean to keep it going, but there, just that note, you, you, that was a big thing. What you just said is that you believe, because usually when I look at real estate, I see real estate as growing uh, on top of the inflation curve, right? That you have some sort of positive spread between inflation uh, and, and real estate appreciation. You just suggested a potential inversion of that, that you, you could essentially have real estate lose value when you adjust it for inflation. Why, why wouldn't real estate and stocks ride on top of that inflation? Well, think about real estate. I mean, if you have a orderly, you know, moderate rate of inflation, that may be the case. Okay. But what happens when inflation really causes uh, the basic necessities of life to get much more expensive? Let's say food and energy, right? So let's say, yeah. I don't know the numbers, but yeah. let's say people are spending 10% of their money on food and energy. I don't, I don't really know what the number is, right? But let's say inflation is so bad that now half your income goes to food and energy. Sure. Oh, crap. You know, I've got it. I need the energy. I mean, I can't live in a, you know, you know I mean, maybe I can wear a sweater. You know, I, I don't have to turn the thermostat. I can try to find a way to conserve, right? But there are certain things that I'm buying that I need to buy, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I spend all this extra money on those necessities, all right, well, what am I going to cut back on, right? And I think your rent is something that a lot of people can cut back on. How do you cut back on your rent? Well, you move back in with your parents and you sure. eliminate your rent. Uh, or if you're older, you move back in with your kids, your grown kids, and now you don't have rent. If you have your own apartment, you to advertise for a roommate. And now that person comes and lives with you. And now that person has half the rent because he's now sharing it, but now there's a vacant property. Or somebody can have a house and just start renting out rooms. I can have a five bedroom house. I can rent out three of those bedrooms. Right, right. right. So now all these single family houses become multifamily houses. So now all of a sudden there's massive supply of rooms to rent because the economy is so bad, people have no choice but to rent out their spare bedrooms. So what's that doing to the real value of rents? And, and then you also have a situation where if inflation is really bad, 
the cost of maintaining those properties really goes up. The maintenance, yeah. you know, the roof now is leaking. Oh, I got a, I need a new roof. Well, it costs a fortune to get that new roof. The materials, I can't afford it. Well, you know, so you have all these other problems, uh, you know, in, in a country that's getting a lot poorer because of, you know, very, very high inflation. So uh, I just think that real estate in the U.S., in this scenario I'm envisioning, is in real terms, is not going to gain value. You know, now on a relative basis, you know, Will property in some areas like California do worse than maybe, uh, you know, um, you know, other parts of the country, you know, that might have better prices, you know? Yeah, sure. You know, they're, they're, you know, so on a relative basis, you know, there's real estate, maybe real estate in Texas or wherever, you know, will will won't be as bad, you know, How, you know uh, maybe the cities question. are going to get decimated, you know, the, the real dense urban areas relative to some more remote locations. <laughs> Very last question on that note then. How much of an impact do you think weather has in, in real estate values? You know, we look at, for example, Southern California versus Florida, Texas, or even colder climates. Yeah, well, clearly that goes to quality of life. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's beautiful weather. Yeah. Um, and, you know, places that have really nice weather, um, you know, Hawaii, California, you know, Florida, you know, most people are willing to pay a premium for that, right? Because people enjoy nice weather. I mean, in the cold, I mean, you know, you're all bundled up. Um, if it rains a lot, if it's cloudy a lot, I mean, so, you know, if, you know, you're willing to live with bad weather, you could generally get cheaper housing. You know, but there are a lot of other things that go into quality of life, the, the, the rest of the experience that comes along with the weather. Weather is just one aspect of it. But obviously, all things being equal, you want nice weather. Sure. Right. I mean, and most people, uh, you know, agree that nice weather is, you know, warm weather, not too hot that, it's, you know, it's all humid and you're sweating. And, you know, so, you know, there's a certain temperature zone that most of us would consider to be ideal. Right. You know, and the more you stray from that, you know, you know, you have to make, obviously, if you go up to someplace remote area in Alaska, you know, where it's dark for most of the year and really, really cold, you know, you could get a better deal on property if you're willing to endure that, you know. Um, but, you know, there's only so much. I mean, one of the reasons that so many people haven't left California was because of the weather. I mean, if California was like, you know, uh, like Maine or something. Everybody would have left a long time ago. I mean, I, people would, they would not have put up with all those taxes and regulations, but mm -hmm. for the great weather and some other experiences that people like about California. Uh, but as they keep turning up the heat when it comes to taxes and regulations, more and more people are just going to say, screw it. The weather's not that good. You know, I'm out of here, you know, and, and, and that's what's going on. You know, Fascinating. Peter, how can people get in touch with you if they want to follow you? I said, first of all, you know, I've got my own podcast, uh, The Peter Schiff Show. You can listen to it at shiftradio.com or, you know, iTunes or any place they have podcasts. I do usually two or three a week. That's kind of been what my average is. Um, so you can listen to them. I also post them up on my YouTube channel, The Shift Report. So you can also listen to them there. I post other content on YouTube. So, uh, you know, sometimes I have stuff on YouTube that's not on uh, shift radio. So you should subscribe to my YouTube channel and you can also, uh, you know, 
you know, sign up for the podcast. It's free. So it's not like you got to, you got to pay for it. Um, then follow me on social media. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Facebook, just Peter Chef. You know, I, I'm not verified on Twitter, but I mean, I got, you know, you'll see me. I got like 300 and, uh, or I got 340,000 followers, something like that. I think I said on YouTube, it's like 425,000. So you can join that. I started a newer one, Shift Clips, only has, a, you know, maybe 5,000. Putting smaller content, you can join that one. I just started last year, Instagram. So I only have maybe, I'm not sure, 70, 80,000 people. I just started that platform. So you can also friend me or follow me, whatever it is on Instagram, Facebook as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to do a lot on social media to try to get my perspective out there and disseminate it to as wide an audience as possible. You know, there's, I have so much to overcome because socialism has a big advantage in that it appeals to a lot more people because you're appealing to people's emotions, not their intellect. And so I got to get people to set aside their emotions and actually think and, and reason and understand the unintended consequences of all these things that sound so good superficially. But once you get beneath the surface, you realize how horrible they are. So, you know, I, I really got to, you know, counteract all this bad information that the left is disseminating from so many different uh, sources. So I want to get out there. And if you can help me spread the word, don't just follow me yourself, but encourage other people to follow me as well. I mean, you know, get your contacts and, and get them and, Hey, I'm just listening to Peter Schiff. I'm listening to his podcast here, you know, get sign up, on uh, uh, follow him on Twitter. He's really got some interesting things to say. So the more my voice can be amplified by everybody else's voice, then we start having that that effect, that network effect of, of disseminating uh, truth about uh, free market capitalism and exposing the lies of socialism. Well, Peter, you've got some very interesting perspectives. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing them on uh, the channel here. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again soon. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I really spent a lot more time than I thought on a Saturday afternoon. You know, we got some great weather. I was on the beach. I came off the beach to, to do the podcast. So, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we did some good. I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. All right. And we will Take see care. you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.